Yeah, it was like Train to Busan, you know, with that one had zombies, but this... <laughs> well, hello again. What room ambiance? Yeah, it's almost like you're, um... <sighs> I'm not quite here? Yeah, it's like either you're in a echo chamber or you're away from the microphone or something. A hollowness to it that says, yeah, you got a lot of room ambience or something. That's pretty okay. So, we're going to talk about Roy tonight. Yes. <laughs> so, you know. All right, are you ready to roll? Let's go. So you're listening to Weird Seasons on the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Rock Hudson on a new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Seasons Network now on Welcome to the seventh episode of the 13th season of Weird Sins Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight, Roy Harold Scherer Jr. was born smack dab in the middle of both the Roaring Twenties and the country in Illinois Thanksgiving of 1925. Of all the gay and bisexual actors and actresses we've covered, Hudson was easily the most elusive and convincing in his career-long presentation as a very straight screen idol and leading man. While known to many in Hollywood circles, his private life only came to public light over three decades into his career, when he was one of the earliest celebrities to openly discuss his being stricken with AIDS. Earlier figures like Klaus Nomi and Freddie Mercury were either considered marginal by the general public or judiciously kept a veil of silence and misdirection over their actual cause of decline in health. Or as with Mercury, even post-mortem. You know, publicity kept insisting it was a heart condition for some time thereafter, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. A naval veteran, and strangely enough, a lifelong Republican and de facto Goldwater girl, he pursued his dream of acting despite a pronounced and career-long difficulty in remembering lines. I can relate to that. Being rejected from drama school and wasting no less than 38 takes to deliver a single line in his first on-screen role, a testament to his all-American good looks and winning personality, to be sure. After being assigned to Universal and undergoing training, he was cast in several forgettable and forgotten cheesy period westerns, pirate and supposed adventure films, before landing industry attention with his Oscar for the execrable James Dean Elizabeth Taylor melodrama Giant. But it was with his oddly fortuitous pairing with Doris Day and neurotic comic relief sideman Tony Randall in a series of fluffy and decidedly conservative romantic comedies at the end of the 1950s that he truly attained marquee leading man status. Going on to star with Italian sex symbols Gina Lola Bridget and Claudia Cardinale, as well as other attempts to replicate the Hudson Day formula with lesser lights like Leslie Caron and Paul Apprentice, Hudson began to tire of these sort of light comedy roles, moving to television for the highly enjoyable and well-remembered Macmillan and Wife, alongside the equally lovable Susan St. James and gay icon and Rosie the Paper Towel Lady Nancy Walker for a several-season, <laughs> nine-decade-spanning run. His latter roles, if more infrequent, tend to be quite idiosyncratic, if interesting. John Frankenhammer's Existential Paranoia, Opus Seconds, yeah. Alistair McLean's flawed, if enjoyable, Cold War spy film, Ice Station Zebra, Roger Vadim's Sexploitation Slasher-slash-comedy, Pretty Maids All in a Row, Entertaining Disaster Epic Avalanche, and the pensive meditation of a miniseries that was The Martian Chronicles. So, again, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Um, I wanted to add that so it's funny because 
I remember growing up, I, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. So when you went to newsstands, there were like magazines. It was like Playboy. Penthouse <laughs> <laughs> <Mirror>. Wii. <laughs> yeah, right. Movie Mirror, Photoplay, Stars Stars Tonight, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, but the first two are, are actual, actually existed. Yes. You know, you know, all kinds of things. And often he was a cover boy for decades. They often, if he was in a movie with uh, Doris Day or whoever, or going out to dinner, they always kind of put, like, Rock is seeing, you know, so-and-so, you know, because they always played that up. But the thing was, everybody knew mm-hmm. in Hollywood. And, in and Hollywood, so, yes. Yes, and, and, and he, he often partied hard <laughs> uh, with uh, very close friends who were all gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this is actually going to be the second time because we did, years ago, we covered the um, films of George Nader, the Jerry Cotton film. Yes. And uh, we called that the first, I, well, I liked it, we, we called that the first gay action hero. Yes. Because a lot of people didn't know George Nader was gay, which in a way was the reason why he fled to uh, Europe, mm-hmm. you know, work, because he couldn't get any work after a while. But it was different with Rock Hudson, because he had that incredible, charismatic relationship with his with his uh, co-stars mm-hmm. female you know, male whatever his movies were like safe yep and family oriented until he started to do some really like you mentioned a few of the movies we're going to discuss tonight hopefully that which is like outrageously good yeah and no aspersions on my father for this but he was shocked when he found out Rock was gay. He couldn't believe it. He was like, no, no way. He's like, you know, because he was like, especially on McMillan, he's like the football hero and the, the tough cop and the kind of a man's man always in his roles. And he was totally shocked that he was gay. So that says something. It's not just like, okay, well, you know, here's Tony Randall. or He wasn't gay, but you know what I mean. Here's um, Tony Perkins or Ronnie McDowell or any of these other people that we had covered like that. It, it wasn't really a shock to people to find out, like, oh, yeah, well, they were probably or they were gay. With Rock Hudson, it was like, what? Or bisexual, right? Or bisexual, right. 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 No, it was a big shock. And you know, the, the thing that's still a shock today, you know, Rock died young at 59. Roy died young at 59. But the thing was, and here's the big thing. He announced he had AIDS and he was dying. And then everybody in Hollywood kind of tried, tried to support. I forget who it was. Uh, maybe you have the info on that actually brought him to the U.S. for some immediate care mm-hmm. because he was in such an advanced state. Yeah. I know Doris Day went to visit him early on with this kind of business, but I don't remember who brought him here for that. You were... It might have been Dinah Shore or somebody like that. And and um, in my memory, which which could be corrupted by years of drinking, but my, <laughs> but my memory was like uh, Rock Hudson died quickly. Yes, after... it was. Announcing not only did he have AIDS and he was dying from AIDS, but that he was also gay. Yeah, yeah it was really fast. And like I said, it was a real shocker because especially in those days, you know, we're even talking about a year or two later, three years later, people like Freddie Mercury, they were burying it even after he was dead. This was like weeks to months later. Yeah, he just came right out and says, yeah, well, you know, I'm dying. I've got AIDS. I'm gay, you know, and then people started. I want to say paying attention to it, because, but before that, those who were around during that time, you remember it was called gay cancer. That's how they referred to it. Right, yes. Because uh, they didn't know what the hell this was. And it was just like, well, why is this popping up all over the gay community? Really, I don't say nowhere else, but it was more rare. No, uh, right. Until I the drug people. users, you know, the sharing needles and things like that started going around. I knew people. I knew I knew uh, 
my friend's sister's husband, mm-hmm. who I thought was a nice guy, and 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 apparently, apparently he liked guys too. <laughs> and that's it. You know, if you slept around in those days, and that was a big thing for that right up until the early '80s, you know, Plato's Retreat kind of a thing. You know, or you shared a needle with somebody, or a junkie, or whatever the hell. You had to get some heroin. <laughs> you know, you don't know. You don't know who you shared it with. Well, that was the other thing too. You you did not have to be bisexual or gay to mm-hmm. get AIDS. A lot of a lot of adult people in the adult film world yes. died too, Pat, because of the the needle sharing thing. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of that, or they didn't know that they were with a partner who was with someone who had AIDS. To this day, that's why the people are pissed off at Mark Wallace there for that. Because, you know, John Holmes was one thing, because he had done gay porn, and, you know, he was kind of like a risk in the first place because he was a junkie and whatever else. But I don't know where Wallace even got it from, but he didn't tell anybody. Right. And he just kept sleeping with people, and to this day, they still like, oh, geez, freaking Mark Wallace. And there's a lot, a lot of people slept with John Holmes. And some yeah. of them are still around, so they don't like... Somewhere, the power that be decided, okay, enough... You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But tonight we're gonna we're gonna talk about rock hearts. We're gonna talk about the fluffy movies, and uh, he was a very good looking guy. I have to admit that. I mean, I don't really like pay attention to guys much. I know you like mention them a lot more. <laughs> but, no, seriously, it's like you know, watch his movies. I'm like, well, that's how he gets by, and he's a big, tall, acts very Six masculine. Months. And, you know, it's obvious that he got these roles because he was probably the most handsome guy they could find out there, you know? It wasn't like, okay, they went for Joe Schmall that's like, hey, he's not too bad looking. No, this guy was like, almost anybody would look at this guy and say, oh, there's a handsome guy. So I get it. But, yeah. <laughs> Which is probably, as you mentioned earlier on the outset, he he famously for years, known to, to very few people until the many biographies that followed, had a hard time with lines. Lines are hard. I, I, was, in, I was in theater. And, yeah. and I, I was in theater in high school. I was in a, a stage play with uh, the villain from Red... The, what's that Schwarzenegger movie? Red Dawn? Red no, Red something. Red Dawn? Red Heat. Oh, God, I remember that, yes. <laughs> and, yeah, Ed Ross was actually in Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. was a, a great friend of a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And this friend of mine says, I wrote a three-man play, and, and Ed's playing... It's a, a rewrite of Lifeboat Cross by Animal House. <laughs> okay. Wants you to play a part. Well, I said, wait, there's only three actors. I'm not an actor. <laughs> he said, no, we're going to do it at um, City College. Okay. And I'm like, wait a minute, Ed Ross, who I just saw in a Schwarzenegger movie, mm-hmm. and is in 48 Hours and 48 Hours too. We played, we covered those. Yep. And I'm like, who I, I met drinking one time. You know, I drank with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you guys can. Google Ed Ross is you're like oh that guy yes mm-hmm. that guy you know so in a lot of his character actors are familiar more with faces than names a lot of times yeah yeah and it's actually you know he's he's aged now so he plays Russians and Ukrainians a lot who the fuck knows mm-hmm. um so I remember doing this gig mm-hmm. and I said okay let me see the script I'm like you fuck that's a lot of lines. <laughs> That's my thing, because I have no problem doing improv or working with other actors. You know, the stuff that you would think is more important and be able to get into the character and, you know, interact with other people and, you know, follow their lines. But if it comes to, like, oh, i got to remember all this, like, especially like Shakespeare, you got to remember every friggin' line. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think I can do that. Well, and that's one reason I didn't really get too serious about that stuff. Yeah, because it was Lifeboat mixed with Animal Farm. It was a mm-hmm. rewrite. I forgot. I got the script. I still have the script to this day. I got killed off a half, half, uh, 45 minutes into the show. They threw me off the boat after Ed strangled me. 
<laughs> and I'm like, okay, I just lay here for. <laughs> oh my god, talk about intensity. Okay, let's go. All right, so like I said, a lot of his early stuff is very like silly little um, westerns and things like that. So I started in 1952, which is about eh, three years into his career. Okay. With has anybody seen my gal? Sexy, throaty-voiced 40s siren Lynn Barry of films like The Falcon Takes Over, Charlie Chan and the City in Darkness, and Mr. Moto's Gamble. And Dracula's daughter herself, Gloria Holden, also of the Gene Harlow, Myrna Lois screwball comedy White vs. Secretary, are the only names you'll recognize in this abject stinker from ridiculously overrated all-that-heaven-allows director Douglas Sirk. <laughs> it's all about obnoxious right-wing fuck and Hollywood bit player Charles Coburn as a miserly, grouchy old prick who gives local soda jerk rock and his business partner all kinds of hell while creepily was Coburn right yeah oh very far right yeah Okay, okay. He's rocking his business partner all kinds of hell while creepily stalking a fat little girl seriously anyway well, he's supposedly a rich prick was she cute what was the fat little girl cute no she was gross <laughs> no not maybe if she was a cute fat little girl <laughs> I just wanted to hear you spit out why. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway. I didn't mean that, by the way. I just wanted to. I know it was a joke. Well, yes. Yeah, so go ahead. Tell the listeners it was a joke. Yeah, they're going to ban us forever for that one. <laughs> anyway, he's supposedly a rich prick in hiding, looking for a poor family to give his money to. And since the kid keeps hanging out with him, her family is the winner, going from rags to riches, while he hovers and watches the various family members screw themselves over thereby. It's sort of like My Man Godfrey in reverse, only without any winning characters, good-looking women, snappy dialogue, humor that works, or a decent director. In other words, it's not. Not in any way. The one, quote, bid for laughs here is that Coburn winds up getting a job at Rock's Soda Shop, and he can't hack making a milkshake or scooping ice cream. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, did I mention? It's a fucking musical? That's right. Weird-looking people doing a supposed Roaring Twenties take on the Archie Comics gang at the local soda shop, complete with some doofus in a Jughead hat, dancing, singing badly, and mugging weird faces straight into the camera. Oh, I feel better about life already. I don't get it. Seriously, guys. And it is almost exclusively gay men who seem to love this shit. What is it you see in musicals? You always hated them, always will. Next. <laughs> What's your take? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't see it for the show, but I, I remember seeing it many years ago. But I can't really comment on it because my memory is like, I, yeah, I saw this. And I saw the, I, I rewatched the trailer as many times as I could, but I couldn't jog my memory. So sorry. You probably forgot it on purpose. <laughs> so uh, give us a couple more of these things. 1953, The Golden Blade. Hold still, Crimson Plague. Piper Laurie, the <laughs> Piper Laurie, the proto Kathy Bates from our Dario Dentro shows Trauma and our Brian De Palma shows Carrie looks surprisingly decent, but holds to the worst stereotypes of redheaded woman in this cheesy sub pepla cross between our Elvis shows Harem Scarum and Aladdin, complete with a Deus Ex Machina swipe from Camelot. Laurie is a particularly low class and shrewish loudmouth of a princess. Check her out making a scene in the harem, yelling, throwing shit, and banging the gong like a loon. Brock literally stumbles into a junk shop and finds a blatantly obvious golden sword and a stone that the proprietor seems to know nothing about. Of course, it's one of those he-who-would-be-king jobs, and is even a baddie named Jafar. To be honest, the Elvis film was worth throwing. You get the distinct impression they didn't know what the hell to do with Rock at this point in his career. Throw him in anything, and he'll put asses in seats. 
50s trash film auteur Nathan Geron, who gave us such low rent of amusing cheese fests as The Black Castle, The Deadly Mantis, Brain from Planet Arouse, and The Boy Who Cried Werewolf was clearly capable of much better than this, as he worked with Ray Harryhausen on the arguably similarly-minded Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, yeah, but, but this yeah. one feels like it was forced on him or something. There's precious little action or adventure to it, and even Tony Curtis delivered much stronger performances in similar fare, like Black Shield of Fallworth, The Vikings, and Taris Balba yes. from our Tony Curtis show. Rock seems even more lost and out of place in this sort of thing than Elvis was. Avoid it like the plague, unless you really need to see Piper Laurie, which he wasn't so frightening to look at. But who would find her crazy Karen routine charming and admirable? Princess my ass. Did you see this one? Yes, I did. They obviously cast Rock because, you know, he, he, he was chiseled. You know, the guy, the guy looked good shirtless, you know, like <laughs> oil on those, those pec muscles, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm rolling with this show because we have to. <laughs> uh, and we're not making fun of Rock's sexual orientation. Yeah, he was what he was. Look good. Why do you think he was cast exactly like this? But here's the funny <laughs> part. You know, so everybody knows Rock is uh, Roy. Rock mm-hmm. is what's going on. But they're like they want to sell him as this hunk. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? In recent years, way, way, way before this show, in recent years, I read so much stuff. I read books. And he had a really tough time. He really had a tough time because he knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. He knew they were selling him to be like this manly guy for the chicks, you know, and, you know, uh, they were pairing him up with these women. And, and he, he, he really didn't want to do it, but it was a career. Yeah. He didn't even like the name they gave him, Rock Hudson. He hated that name. Well, look, look at Peter Lupus. You know, mm-hmm. from Mission Impossible, you know, and, and we're not throwing any aspirations on the sexuality at all. But when he started out, he was Rock Madison. <laughs> yes. Well, that's because he was so big and muscular. Yeah, right. And they, he did a couple of peplums. And, you know, so, yeah, I did see the, this in trailers. I can't remember much about it. Same thing with Taza, son of Cochise. Did you see this? I did not see that one. It's by Douglas Sirk again. <laughs> Who's that guy? Is it Todd Haynes? I think it's Todd Haynes that makes these Douglas Sirk kind of romancy kind of throwback pictures to a time bygone. And so, well, it's sort of akin to Charles Bronson and, and those Indian films. Oh, yeah. At the beginning of his career. Mm-hmm. You know, when Bronson was... Oh, was, what was it Never So Few, where he was like the racist Navajo, the Frank Sinatra show we did? <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah, something like that. You know, so Rock plays an Apache warrior. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just like, we, we see where this is going. Barbara Rush, who was a uh, TV a actress, familiar figure in television and films mm-hmm. back in those days, mm-hmm. mid, mid to late 50s uh, co-stars. It, it's just yeah, wasn't she in Mr. and Mrs. North with... Uh, Oh, geez, uh, Denning? She might have been. Richard Denning? Uh, yeah, it, it's just it's just like another thing. Like, what do we do with this guy? But all they have in allows was a little bit better, I think. Yeah. Unless you want to go earlier. No, no, I was going to that one next. So uh, 1955, oh. all the heaven allows. I like Harvey. 
He's pleasant, amusing, and he acts his age. I think Freud was right. When you reach a certain age, sex becomes incongruous. <laughs> and with that childishly prudish denial of reality, we come to Schmoltz director Douglas Sirk of No Notable Credits. Amazingly catty... Yeah, we just talked about him, right? I know. Well, like I said, No Notable Credits. Amazingly catty piss take on an uptight conservative America, all the heaven allows. The first Nancy Reagan, Jane Wyman, stars as an odd-looking middle-aged widow going all horny housewife on big strapping lad, Rock Hudson. He's a landscaper working well, on a wouldn't property. You? <laughs> I mean, no, if you were Jane Wyman and this guy comes walking in the room, you'd be like, I'm dripping. <laughs> Yo, come on. Yeah, was, she yeah. was really not appealing. <laughs> I can see that. No, that this guy walks in and he's like a good-looking guy and stuff. He's all tall. Like, yeah. <laughs> You have to put your mindset in these. <laughs> if I'm lost. <laughs> no, in some cases like this one, I'd rather not. <laughs> He's a landscaper working on her property, and after sussing out just how bad she wants him to dust the cobwebs from her nether regions, he invites her to his tiny ranch out in the woods, which has a nice if dilapidated mill on the property, and best of all, if rather unsafe in security terms, half the house is a greenhouse. I'd love something like that. Unfortunately, Wyman is living in the crappiest, most uptight era of modern American history, and she's savaged by catty frenemies like the perpetually aged Endora from Bewitched, Agnes Moorhead, particularly... Another another character yes. in real life, which yes, she was. we're not going to go there. <laughs> particularly nasty queen Jacqueline DeWitt, who's probably pissed that her biggest roles were Fog Island with George Zuko and the Sydney Toller Charlie Chan meeting at midnight, and her two obnoxious kids, one of whom is the fairly attractive, glasses-bedecked, ponytail-and-bang-sporting Gloria Talbot, later of 50 sci-fi standbys The Cyclops, The Leech Woman, and I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Geez, she's a bit of a hot number beneath all that affected prudishness, and supposedly brainy besides. Hmm, something going on here in this film. It's strangely watchable in a very camp way. The sort of film you invite a few queens over and rip apart, repeating DeWitt's nasty grams and mocking the absurd Sturman drying over absolutely nothing. Jesus, woman, just fuck the guy and dump your catty-ass suburban party-ass bitch friends and drunken wet your husbands already. Rock as ever is good-looking, six-foot-plus man's man in both senses of the word. And like I said, when I say my father was surprised when he found out which way the man swung, it's less an indictment of another generation's naivete than testament to just how well he carried it off. Unlike several folks we covered on this show, he never really betrays his leanings, coming off more butch than even George Sanders. Hmm. This guy looks like a screen idol, he's as big and burly looking as a football player of the era, and makes the ladies swoon quite believably. This is hardly Tony Perkins' marked as a teen idol territory we're talking. Wyman is neurotic and not exactly anyone's dream girl, save perhaps old Ronnie, but the film is nicely lit, the interiors are lovely retro kitsch, it's nice to see someone giving stiff society and his uptight mores a huge middle finger right stab down in the middle of McCarthyism. So while hardly a film I return to often, it has a certain camp appeal that's undeniable to those so inclined. John Waters was watching, no question. No, I have to agree. Uh, Douglas Sirk's films have a huge following amongst John Waters, <laughs> Todd Sullivan's, you know, the whole, the whole crowd there. Mm-hmm. Gay men. Camp lovers, yeah. Camp folks, you know, and... and even people aren't gay. People enjoy camp films. Uh, I enjoy the hell out of camp films. <laughs> I love Spice World. We just watched that again a couple months ago. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I find this works better than most Douglas Sirk pictures, only because it's not, like, dreary. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of Douglas Sirk films can be unrepentantly dreary, to the point mm-hmm. where you're like, please, no more. 
Yeah. Um, now this one's actually fun because it's so catty. Everybody's so nasty to her. And it's yeah, just like, it's, it's really. What are you upset about? Film. The hell with them. Do you really need these people around? Just go fuck the guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a giant, right? Oh yes. So, 1956, giant. Liz Taylor, wife, ex-wife, and ex of Richard Burton and many of his films from our show on Burton, and Rod Taylor of their The VIPs from the same show, joined Method Casualties James Dean and Sal Mineo, both of the overrated Rebel Without a Cause, Lenji Jallo regular Carol Baker, and that schmuck overactor Dennis Hopper from our Peter Fonda show's Easy Rider, our Sandra Bullock show's Speed, and our Wesley Snipes show's Boiling Point, in this turgid melodrama from a George Stevens, whose only notable credit was the Astaire Rogers swing time. Honestly, I had a hell of a time getting through this smeary smoking turd, but Liz is a hoity-toity rich bitch who falls for big strapping rancher rock and winds up as part of his terrible real and de facto family out in the country. His sister hates Liz. Dean is a ranch hand who's hot for her. His sister dies throwing a hissy fit and leaves some ranch property to Dean. Rock can't buy him out. Liz is pissed off at red state racism. Years pass. They have Carol Baker. On and on and on with this miserable, boring, middle American bullshit. When I was a teenager, I at least still paid attention to supposedly knowledgeable critics rather than deservedly mocking their general cluelessness and lack of taste. I checked out all these films from widely faded folks like Jimmy Dean, and even then I found Giant an unwatchable piece of shit and marveled at the love thrown its way as if it were some sort of cinematic apotheosis in all these method assholes' careers. There are several such in the cast, well beyond Dean and Minia. My opinion of it upon a revisitation is even worse than previously. Utter trash, there's really nothing good to say about it. So, of course, it won a bunch of Oscars. <laughs> What's your take? Well, yeah. <laughs> That's just no, a lot right no, there. I, no, um, James Dean was a... He was like a supernova. He was like this like a, a De Niro, Pacino, Harvey Keitel, all wrapped up into a very young package. Yep. Came out of acting school, did three or four pictures, and then blew his fucking car off the cliff. After getting, you know, gay men to still bought cigarettes on his chest and all kinds. He's very self-destructive. <laughs> he carried yes, the rolls home yes. with him. There's that too. And he only had done a few television roles and a few major feature films. And he actually, this, this is one of those movies where he actually had two or three films in the can. When he died, they had to finish. Supposedly, somebody had to, like, finish the dubbing for, like, they had, you know, this is before CGI. They had to, like, we edit this fucking picture because he had a big, a big part. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, how the legend of James Dean began. <laughs> I, it, it's it's so bizarre. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's not a film that you or I would like or turn to. And sometimes, you know, here's that thing, people. Our loyal audience, comfort films. Sometimes uh, you don't want to be stressed out. Sometimes you don't want to watch something you've seen often. But there's something from your memory. Oh, I like that movie. I haven't seen it in a while. It's a, what we call a comfort film. You know what I'm talking about. That kind yeah, of movie. sure. Yeah, you, know, you and your wife might like it. You, if you're alone, I'll watch what we call a comfort film. This is not a comfort film. Mm -hmm. It's a long fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. And there's uh, all kinds of weird shit in there, like all this family bullshit and all this stuff about the racism down there. Seven and... minutes, people. That's like, this is over three hours, first of all. Right. Giant? <laughs> yeah. Giant. Yeah, it is giant. Funny time. <laughs> 
And it's like trying to be Rebecca because, you know, okay, this girl marries into this family. She doesn't realize the problems that are there. But then they start having kids and it gets generational. And I don't know. It's just a fucking mess. Well, no, no. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, it it gets generational. And and it's just, I think, though, Rock Hudson was deserved of his nomination for Best Actor. There's a lot of familiar faces in this, Mm -hmm. for sure. Not so much film, but television film, Errol Holloman, you know, Rod Taylor. And it's just, this was what Hollywood was putting out at a certain time yep. as event movies, you know, event movies. This is why I always say that once you get past the code, when that kicked in in 1934, and especially once you get into the 40s, going up to like 1966, basically when the hippies and the auteurs took over, mm-hmm. most of that shit is unwatchable. Yeah, we find things here and there with so many shows we've been doing, but for the most part, American films during that time were so conservative, so pandering to middle American tastes and watchdogs and Karens and whatever the hell else the, the equivalent was in that day, you know, the McCarthyites, that there is nothing to them. They're so safe. I mean, just nothing about them that is appealing, nothing about them that's fun. And of course, they're all like, oh yeah, Oscar Bait, these are the greatest movies ever made. You hear people still talking like that. Oh, they don't make movies like the golden age of Hollywood anymore. Please. This shit is unwatchable. And they were heavily melodramatic, like yes. written on the wind. I did not see that one. I went right to Pillow Talk after this. Yeah, it's another one of your favorite Douglas Sirk films. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one even has Robert Stack, one of your favorites. And <laughs> Wow, I saw Robert Stack. Oh, yeah, Action Man, right. It's like, God, he's like, the whole time he's acting like it's uh, Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was another guy with a very stilted delivery. Uh-huh. But this is the one that the camp crowd really goes to more than Giant because Rock plays an alcoholic playboy. <laughs> no, sorry, Robert plays the alcoholic playboy. It's, it's, it's just melodrama, melodrama, melodrama. And it's it's got some familiar faces in the cast. Lauren Bacall, everybody's favorite. From our Bogart show. Woman who is attracted to both these puzzles. But <laughs> I mean, like, so you have Robert Stack, who's like literally a cement block. Yeah. Here, Robert Gregory Peck. <laughs> who, yeah, I'm sure Humphrey, you know, Humphrey was still alive at this time. Yeah, 56. Yeah, he probably said, yeah, go with it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a lot of people love Britain on the Wind. I'm not one of them, but uh, it's okay. We're going to jump to Pillow Talk. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, I really thought you were going to do that for World of Arms. Oh, boy, I'm dreading this one. So, 1959 Pillow Talk. Hollywood's other annoying queen of prudes, after Sandra Dee, of course, Doris Day is the unlikely, quote, romantic lead in a series of very early 60s comedies cast against Rock Hudson. Here she's an interior decorator living alone with drunken, mouthy, proto-Nancy Walker maid Thelma Ritter of our Tony Curtis show's Boeing Boeing, who's so cheap she has a party line, I kid you not. Worse, she doesn't just listen in on Broadway Toonsmith rocks, chatting up his numerous pieces on the side. She's so self-righteous a Karen as to continually interrupt and talk him down mid-call with these women. But when he's out one night, he sees her dancing and obviously being undiscriminating, decides she's hot for her frumpy-ass faking being a rich Texan. (laughs) For whatever reason, Rock starts returning the favor, dropping in on her phone calls, and playing things close to the bone, mocks his fake persona she's so hot for, pointing out that he's really gay. I kid you not. You mean he didn't try to get you up to his hotel room? Must I spell it out? There are some men who are very devoted to their mothers, you know. The type that like to collect cooking recipes, exchange bits of gossip. 
meantime, our man in Marrakesh himself, Tony Randall, Richard <laughs> Benjamin, and Arnold Schwarzenegger show Scavenger Hunt, is not only Rock's rich Broadway quote angel, read theatrical sugar daddy, but has been unsuccessful trying to woo all asexual Doris for whatever bizarre reason, and susses out what's going on between Rock and her. <laughs> Need a light, cowboy? <laughs> yes, these are actual lines of dialogue. Uh, when Randall blows the whistle with Day and winds up slapping her when she gets hysterical, a few do-gooders deck him for it, thinking he's the guy who jilted her, one of the few intentionally funny scenes in the film. The rest of this is Day avoiding Rock, his attempting to get her back by hiring her to decorate his place, her turning it all tacky harem chic, and the expected public putting her in her place, meaning, of course, they're married, and instantly she's knocked up and pumping out brats. Jesus, what the hell was wrong with people in the 50s? Thank God for the Beatles, and hence both the British Invasion and the Hippies. This one was directed by a very special favors, Michael Gordon. Day, who really was an asexual prude, turned down the part of Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, finding it, quote, vulgar and offensive, and, quote, reprehensible on moral grounds. Yeah, real catch there. No wonder Wham! UK featuring the public men's room haunting George Michael, saying, you make the sunshine brighter than Doris Day, please. I just don't get her. So, what's your take on this one? It is a strange movie to revisit after all these years. It's, uh, yeah, because you already mentioned it. There's the Rock Hudson's allusions to being like a mother's boy, which is like somebody wrote this into the script very knowingly, but I'm sure everybody already knew, (laughs) you know, those associated with the film, what was going on. And uh, it's funny, though, they... The, they have a connection, not connection. <laughs> they have a, Doris Day and Rock Hudson had a connection, not connection. It, it, how, how else do I put this? It's like um, they were in a number of pictures together where it's, you know, Rock and Doris again, Rock and Doris. And, and you know what? It's like they have absolutely no chemistry. Yes. And, and you know, he's had chemistry with uh, Costa. Other women, especially Susan Nixon James, we'll get to soon. Yeah, I, it's just like, there's no chemistry between these people. And she's so unappealing in every way. I mean, it's like, oh my God, where'd you find this woman? Wasn't she in Caprice, the Richard Harris spy movie, which there was no chemistry there either. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's almost like, but this this really groused the box office for a lot of people. It was mm-hmm. like, uh, Okay. And, you know, my wife loves these movies. You know, she's into all that Archie Comics kind of stuff anyway. But, you know, it's like, okay, I get it. It's cute. It seems kind of safe. And there's not a lot of, you know, modern issues, problems, sex violence. It's whatever. right, too. It's safe. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. a safe, fluffy little comedy and whatever the hell else. And it's its own, like, imaginary insular world that can never happen in the real world. But the problem is her, really. It comes down to, like, what the fuck? Who would have to go after this woman? You know, who cares about her? And she's such... Karen in every respect. I'm like, <laughs> and, and in real life too. It's like, okay, this isn't just a character she's playing. I'm like, holy shit. All right, but you know, obviously she was okay with Rock. They were friends for years, and she was one of the first people to come running when he got sick. But you know, so respect to her for that much. But I just don't get it. Well, <laughs> so anyway, if anybody's thinking, well, we're skipping a lot of movies. We we can't possibly cover yeah. every single picture. He worked a lot. He worked a lot. Uh, he slowed down after mid, the mid-60s. Yeah, when he gave up films and started doing TV for a while, he didn't do that many yeah, efforts. Yeah. So Rock Hudson worked a lot, but, but it was never our intention to cover everything. No. So people were looking for us to discuss a fear of the arms or Twilight for the Gods or This Earth is Mine. Maybe another time, another 
place, but it's right now it's just like we're just cherry picking. Yeah, and we've had shows like that where some movies we covered, you know, three or four shows later because somebody else was in the cast, and then well, we got to watch this thing finally. So you know, somewhere down the road maybe, but yeah, that's it wasn't really available or interesting at this point. <laughs> well, it's just it's it's nearly impossible to do when you when you work this much, yeah. but. Yeah, we're trying to do our best. So, 1961, The Last Sunset. No, not the first and probably best album from Camelot frontman Roy Consol band Conception, but a boring, stagey western throwing together names as in Congress as rock, noir regular Kirk Douglas of Saturn 3, our Tony Curtis shows Paris is Burning, and our Brian De Palma shows The Fury, cute but dumb or perpetually drugged out, Carol Lindley of our <laughs> All Our Reach shows The Shuttered Room, and our Dan Curtis in the 70s shows The Night Stalker. Baron Blood himself, Joseph Cotton, also of the Hellbenders, Latitude Zero, and our William Shatner shows White Comanche, and Neville Brand of DOA, Police Connection, and Eaten Alive from our Toby Hooper show. Honestly, like most American Westerns, I couldn't sit through this crap. But the gist of it is, Kirk is a killer on the lamb and hot for what I think is supposed to be Lindley's mother. Rock is a sheriff or some shit chasing him down. Cotton's a drunk, and they all get involved in transporting cattle. Don't ask me. I don't care. Did you sit through this one? I did. And, you know, Robert Aldrich is one of my favorite directors. I could drop his name to you a few times that we should do a Robert Aldrich show, not necessarily his film. <laughs> and he makes interesting movies for the most part. you got a heavy testosterone cast here. This is time period. But Westerns are very popular on television. John Wayne's in the... Theaters making westerns left or right. It's about four or five years before the Eastwood Leone westerns. So this is a little different, but not different enough. I could not buy what they're selling. Rock is a bad guy. I give him credits for trying to sell Rockers and as a, a bad novel, but it looked like there was trouble on the set of this picture. I don't know. I kind of got the feeling watching it. I was like, I don't know. Is there a problem? And it's written by Dalton Trumbull, one, one of the great screenwriters. And like, so what happened with this movie? So I'm not sure. Nobody's sure. Who knows? Lover come back? Baby come back. Who's that? Wasn't that? It was one of those 70s, like one hit wonder band. <laughs> like Firefall or one of those, you know, but it wasn't there. I think it was, oh, wasn't there. But could have them. Yeah, but that kind of a band, you know, 10CC, you know, bands like that, that was just like, they did one song and that was it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, 1961, come September, Robert Mulligan of our Tony Curtis shows The Rat Race and The Great Imposter, the weird 70s Hicks, Bratz, and Ghost TV stand by the other, and <laughs> Rocks Come September, drops this weird take on the standard rock cousin comedy where Rock is a rich fuck banging the overrated Gina Lola Brigida of our Tony Curtis shows Trapeze. and just Humphrey overrated? Yes. <laughs> yep. But I liked her here, which is interesting. Uh, or Tony Curtis shows Trapeze and our Humphrey Bogart shows Beat the Devil, who, as if you were an Italian man of the era, is his occasional mistress. They literally get together only in September every year. As you might expect, she's banging other guys and is about to marry one of them, an unusually foppish Ronald Howard of her Hammer Show's Curse of the Mummy's Tomb and the American TV Sherlock Holmes of the early 50s. Obviously, he hasn't got much going on because the second Rock calls, she drops the wedding dress and runs. The rest of the film hinges on Rock's estate manager, chauffeur, and, quote, major domo, a very special favorite co-star Walter Clock King Sleezak from Batman, having rented Rock's place out as a bed and breakfast to a gaggle of rather overage teenagers. 
inclusive of the Dumwich Horror's cloyingly prudish Sandra D, the decidedly gay star of Cabaret and father of Dirty Dancing's Jennifer, Joel Grey, and the doofy and already middle-aged-looking Bobby Darren. The rest of the film is split between Rock's frustrated attempts to fuck a particularly attractive and saucy Lola Brigida, which is continually interrupted by the teens and their nonsense, and Lola's rather disingenuous attempts to maintain propriety and pretend they're just fellow guests. You aren't making any sense. I don't have to make sense. I'm Italian. Things are further complicated as Bobby Darren and Sandra Dee's weird relationship becomes parallel to Rock's and Lola's, and she takes umbrage at his uber-conservative, quote, proper deportment of young ladies talks, realizing just how he sees her since she's putting out without putting up some pointless societally directed fight over it. No relationship can survive if either party starts to think. It's pretty stupid, safe, 50s, separate beds type stuff, despite the attempt to insert the more adult and earthy, not to mention lovely, fiery, European sex symbol Lola Bridget into all this. But it's probably the best Gina Lola Bridget ever looked or came off on screen. At times she's endearingly cute, like when she wakes him up from being passed out on the couch with kisses, or when he meets her dancing and singing by a garden gate. And while it's not as oversexed and entendre-laden as a very special favor, it does once again drop some pretty broad hints about Rock's orientation with exchanges like this. Let me tell you something about Italian women. They're not to be trusted. They're deceitful. They're emotionally unstable. Doesn't that apply to all women? Well, of course it does. That's where they've got us. Nothing else to replace them with. What was your take? <laughs> well, I always liked Gina Lola Bridget. I liked her here. I'll say that. Well, like crazy, crazy like her, but I, I liked her, and 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 she's kind of hot looking here. And Sandra D, you know, this movie's filled with oddballs in the cast. You know, Sandra D, who was troubled <laughs> in real life. Bobby Darren, now you mentioned Bobby Darren looking tired, and all. Bobby Darren had some kind of thing going on with him where he died early. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah, I just knew him for all that splish blast, and you know, like uh, his, his fake Sinatra and. Act the Ninth was his big hit, and uh, he did a couple of really powerful film performances. Pressure Point is one of them, but I don't think anybody knew what to do with Bobby Darren, because Bobby Darren was this, like, uh, multi-talented guy, and, and but he, he also could look nebbish, so they put him in these kind of Tony Randall-ish parts. Yeah, it's weird because you figure, okay, he's doing, like, 50s rock and roll, and then for some reason he's doing, like, sub-Frank Sinatra stuff. So he was somewhere between, like, a Harry Connick Jr. and a Fabian. Mm-hmm. But then he wasn't, like, you know, you, Fabian had, like, those teen idol looks, like a sub-Elvis kind of a right. thing. Bobby Darren looks like an old man. It's like, what's he doing here? I, so it's very strange. Yeah, I don't know what was going on with that, but who knows. So where are we going next? Okay, so next up, uh, 1961, Lover Come Back. There must be a law against that kind of entertaining. It was a Roman orgy. I saw this girl being carried out in a bass fiddle case. You can imagine what else was going on. A Delbert man of no notable credits drops the second in the trilogy of co-starring roles for the trio of Hudson, Randall, and Day. Do you think you'd enjoy watching a girl undress? I don't know, but I'm willing to give it a try. Day and Hudson arrival ad men. She is once again a prude, pissed off that he scores good clients by paying them with strippers and booze. This one revolves around his getting one of the strippers by promising the user in his next ad campaign, but it's for a non-existent product. His clueless boss, Randall, actually airs the ads, meaning Rock has to come up with a product to sell under that name. He gets a dotty chemist to come up with something, but Day is trying to sabotage him and steal the account for herself. So he pretends once again to be another character, this time the chemist, to keep her off the track. Meantime, the product he gets turns out to act like a triple martini, meaning Day gets loaded and fucks Rock, which in these uptight old 50s, early 60s things means they get married. <laughs> the booze industry pays Rock to kick the product off the market. Happy ending. 
Alice from the Brady Bunch and Schultze the Secretary from Love That Bob with Bob Cummings, also the Julie Newmar sitcom Oddity Living Doll, which we discussed, I think, last time in the intro, and B. Davis, Variety Show Maven Edie Adams of Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke and The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood, and our Elvis Show's Frankie and Johnny co-star Donna Douglas round out the cast. There are two ways to handle a cold. You can fight it or you can give in and go to bed with it. Explain it to me. I don't get it. What is the appeal of Doris Day? Even if you enjoy these films like my wife does, it's despite her, not because of her. And just wait till you see the poorly studio-bound beach scene. Did she steal that hat from someone's great-grandmother? Someone knew what the woman was like inside, that's for sure. What's your take? (laughs) Well, these were very popular for the time period, being the early 60s. And it was right before Frankie and Annette hit the scene with their beach movies. And uh, that whole thing changed, you know. So in a way, for the next uh, one to three years, Rock and Doris Day would would kind of, with Tony, would kind of like roll the <laughs> the safe cinema, you know, yeah. the airwaves with these kind of movies. But you know, I I always believed that once, even though she was like well covered, once Busty and that from the cello broke out there with Frankie Avalon and mm-hmm. the crew, it was like. Doris who? Doris they <laughs> knew it. Mm-hmm. Everything would change very soon, very shortly. Yes. Send me no flowers? Uh, actually, The Spiral Road, 1962. Okay. Robert Mulligan, who we address a few times tonight, as well as in our Tony Curtis show, gives this sorry excuse for a jungle adventure where Rock is a young doctor who heads out to Borneo to work alongside famous leprosy doctor Burl Ives. That's right, the fucking snowman from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, jolly old folky, and grubby old white trash abuser from the turgid Desire Under the Elms from our Tony Perkins and Sophia Loren shows, is a Mother Teresa quinine slugging doctor to a jungle leper colony halfway around the world, and Rock's itching to learn from him. Or is that itch leprosy setting in? Rock's got a boring old wife, too. A character from our Frank Sinatra show's Tony Rome, I didn't even remember being in the damn movie, Gina Rowlands of No Further Credits of Note, but she's just there to whine at him about, no, not his insane decision to catch the highly contagious and I believe still incurable disease to no logical end whatsoever. But wait for it, his atheism, I kid you not. That's seriously the real point of this movie. That he's an atheist and Oz is a jolly, fat, religious jungle doctor who buys shit like a nurse victim's assertion that dying of this horrific disease is somehow God's will. Fucking idiot. Ives disappears halfway through the movie, as does an annoying Bic character who's a Salvation Army priest type that keeps pissing everybody off with his inane moralizing and sexless wife Rollins, as Rock heads upstream to track down a former doctor turned hopeless drunk who flipped out and vanished, then winds up stranding himself after a run-in with their next surprise bit player, weirdly, Reggie Nolder of Pornos, Dracula Sucks, and Blue Ice, both are moved over at thirdicemma.wordpress.com, and our Toby Hooper shows Salem's Lot who appears as the evil witch doctor who strands Rock in an unfamiliar part of the jungle and causes his absurd plot-stretch road to Damascus pit. This isn't just a bad movie. It's a downright offensive one, unless you're a Catholic priest looking to air some propaganda to CCD kids after a screening of Zeffirelli's brother, son, and sister, Moon. Did you see this one? Yeah, I did. Jenna <laughs> Rollins actually married John Cassavetes, and she was in a lot of those Cassavetes, Peter Falk films that Cassavetes director, including mm-hmm. Gloria, which was like this uh, aged gun mall protecting a uh, hood kid from mobsters. Mm-hmm. They're pretty good, but yeah, she was she was something. But <laughs> this is back in the day when you know she was young and you know they're trying to figure out what to do with her. 
Yeah, I saw this one. It was like, I think it was like one of those, like, what do we do a rock kind of movies. Mm -hmm. I think he was tired of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so I give him credit for that. But I, I didn't enjoy this film because I was like, come on. you know. That's what she's worried about. Not that he's going out in the jungle and like you're trying to mess with leprosy and everything else. That he's a fucking atheist. Seriously. <laughs> well, you know, you got to remember there are times back then. Mm -hmm. you know, how people thought. Yep, it was very uptight back then. It was a horrible decade. So, yeah. 1964, man's favorite sport, question mark. Unbelievably, none other than Howard Hawks dumps Rock in the unenviable position of singing, I like a girl who wears Abercrombie and Fitch as he works there. Of course, this is back in the days when the company was a sad rival to L.L. Bean, selling fishing and hunting gear and equipment, rather than generic t-shirts with their name on it to overprivileged fashion challenge yuppies. So there's that much in his defense. I like a girl who wears Abercrombie and Fitch. Hawks, who gave us classics like The Thing, or Humphrey Bogart shows The Have and Have Not, and The Big Sleep, and a host of screwball comedy classics like His Girl Friday, 20th Century, Bringing Up Baby, and Ball of Fire, had degenerated at this point in his fading career to crap like the Cary Grant, Marilyn Monroe monkey business, and this awkward, anachronistic attempt at reviving the very depression to World War II screwball comedy genre for the British invasion to early hippie-era audience. Tapping Richard Benjamin, lifelong spouse Paula Parenthes, soon to co-star in their He and She sitcom, as discussed in our Richard Benjamin show, as the chatty, strangely Joanne Worley-esque PR rep tasked with teaching Rock, who never has and despises the taste of him to fish, so he can take part in a big tournament repping the company. Wouldn't it have been easier just to let her do it? The rest of the film is Prentice and Eurospy and Paul Nashy regular Maria Pershy of things like our Jeff Franco show's Castle of Fu Manchu, our Spanish horror show's Horror of the Zombies, and our Nashy show's House of Psychotic Women, People Who Own the Dark and Exorcismo, trying to teach the inept rock to fish without drowning, breaking his arm, and so forth. There's the expected mistaken romance mishap, his fiance drops in the final minute, looks at the clinch, but most definitely isn't. Rock actually wins by dumb luck, but admits he knows nothing and gets canned for it. But they hire him back because that just makes their product look better. If a newbie can win a tournament with their equipment, anybody can. Prentice gives him a kiss, roll credits. It's really bad. A sort of low bar even by Rock Hudson comedy standards, but Hawk's penchant for snappy dialogue and real-world style of conversationalism, with everyone interjecting and finishing each other's sentences, almost makes it watchable. Almost. What's your take? No, I agree with you. You know, as much as, I don't know why Howard Hawks did this, you know, mm -hmm. maybe his his star was fading as a director and uh, someone said, hey, you know, do this picture, you know, it's Rock Hudson's very popular. Yeah, he has, and he had a knack for, and I'm sure his actors worked hard, especially these guys. Especially mm -hmm. Rock, who had a trouble with lines, as we go back to the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. I'm sure these guys worked really, really, really hard trying to remember the stuff and doing snappy dialogue like it was like real, you know, like we talk over each other. Everybody yeah. talks over each other. Why? Not because your point is stronger or your point is less. It's like an idea comes in. Yeah, you're having a conversation. Yeah. You're animated. Yeah, you're having a real-life conversation. You're invested. Howard <laughs> Hawks was really good at that. And yeah, it's is it a lesser Hawks film? Yes, but in a way, it makes an intriguing Rock Hudson picture because it's one of the few things you see him where he's involved in that kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't mind Paul Apprentice. Yeah, I bet a lot of Paul Nashie fans don't know Maria Pershy's in this in a major role. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, you're going to have to find the smoking guys. <laughs> there's, so all these, there's all these alleged polish. I know everything about polish. Wait, she was on a rock concert movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Strange Bedfellows? No, actually, Send Me No Flowers is next. 1964. You're right. You're right. Sorry. I wouldn't spend another night under the same roof with a swinger. I admit I was trying to match you up with Bert, but it was for an unselfish, even noble reason that I wanted you to have somebody. Have somebody? Norman Jewison of our Steve McQueen show's Thomas Crown Affair and our Al Pacino show's Injustice for All directs this final and weakest of the Rock Hudson Doris Day Tony Randall pairings where Rock is a hypochondriac convinced he's going to die. Gay icon and queen of cattiness Paul Lynn of Beach Blanket Bingo, Bewitched, and Center Square and Hollywood Squares is the cemetery plot salesman and Clint Walker of our Charles Bronson show's The Dirty Dozen, and most memorably as the Nietzschean werewolf from our Dan Curtis and the 70s show's Scream of the Wolf, is the swinger at the golf club Rock tries to vicariously fuck, uh, fix day up with. There is no other woman. No, but we did make arrangements for another man. Of course, he's not really sick, so Day goes from fawning over him to treating him like shit, thinking he's doing all this to cover up for an affair. But the only guy he's sleeping with, literally, though not openly in the way you think, is pal Tony Randall. Yeah, they drop lots of nudge-wink hints in Rod's movies. Yet, there's the usual happy ending, and if you like the Rock Day films, you like this one as well, but it's a strange one, to say the least. What's your take? I'll be right there taking a refresher. Refresher course. Look up, what the hell's the deal with Doris Day, anyway? You know, I really didn't hate this movie so much, surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't love it, but I actually enjoyed it, because... um, if you like the Rock Doris films, the, all three of them are of a piece. It's, but even by then, this is a weird one. It's a weird one. The whole thing of him being a hypochondriac and digging up cemetery plots. And then, of course, he's trying to hook her up with this other guy. And then he buys a plot for, like, you know, two guys and her. And, like, what the hell is... It's a, there's a lot of loaded stuff in there, but it's just a weird one. It's a, Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of loaded stuff. And that's why I kind of liked it. It was like, in retrospect, I was like, so we're, we're making... Rock Hudson to be his hypochondriac, you know, kind of like, you know, like, it's like whoever wrote the script, it's supposedly based on a book that already existed, whoever wrote the script and was probably retooling it day by day, you know, on the set, mm-hmm. was like, how much a real rock can we put in here? <laughs> you know, and get away with, you know? Um, like I said, it was almost like he was vicariously fucking Clint Walker through this whole thing. Like, okay. Yeah. You know, I <laughs> and he's sleeping that. with Tony Randall. They show him in that. <laughs> I don't know about Clint Walker. Ooh. He's a big guy, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was even bigger. <laughs> even bigger, yeah. Posey in the Dirty Dozen. I don't want to go there. No, look, get the no, 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 no. <laughs> and remember, he was very Nietzschean in Scream of the Wolf, so. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I don't, why did you put that thought in my mind? <laughs> Watching these movies, it's hard not to see this stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, that big baritone voice. Oh, no, no. Where are we going next? Strange Bedfellows, 1965. One of the realities he had to face with was that she was not only a painter, she was a joiner with very definite beliefs, all of which were the exact opposite of his. And when words failed, she resulted to pure Italian logic. When logic failed, pots flew. Since her aim was better than her English, he did the only thing a gentleman could do. He grabbed his pants and ran for his life. Melvin Frank, whose sole notable credits amount to Mr. Blanding's Bill's his Dream House and our George Siegel show's A Touch of Class, drops this weird attempt old men to adapt to, or more accurately mock the values of changing times. 
I could kill you. With what, a slogan? Lola Bridget is still looking pretty good in a red slip and breakfast at Tiffany Streetwear, is toned down considerably from her fiery mistress of come September. Here is an artist who meets and marries Grant in a whirlwind tryst, only for his uptake conservatism to find incompatibility with her leftist beatnik era beliefs. Unbelievably, he walks away from this fiery sex pot rather than adapting his rigid mindset, and they finally decide to divorce after several years' separation. Of course, as soon as they meet in the lawyer's office, they jump each other's bones and it starts all over again, complicated slightly by her having, yes, yet another simp fiancé she's not that into, and his trying to social climb in his company, which is not exactly aided by his on-again, off-again wife's attending very tame at one point rather visible protest rallies. Oh my, what is a man to do? <laughs> you won't believe this, but there are other people in this world besides Italians. But who needs them? Perpetual South, Gig Young, of our book art shows Desperate Hours. Perpetual South, I like that. <laughs> our book art shows Desperate Hours, our Elvis shows Kid Galahad, our Oliver Reed shows The Shuttered Room, and our Tony Perkins shows Five Miles to Midnight is one of the Mad Men-style corporate shits at Rock's Company, and Terry Thomas of our Amicus shows Vault of Horror, the Dr. Fives films, and our Mario Baba shows Danger Diabolic cameos as an undertaker, don't ask. Lola Bridges is almost incidental to the proceedings, dropping in and out at random intervals, while Rock runs around fretting like Tony Randall or Dick York's far superior Darren in an episode of Bewitched. Amusingly, even when she's supposed to be Lady Godiva in a protest, she's very clearly in a flesh-toned bodysuit. Jeez, couldn't even talk her into the usual nothing-really-showing-side-view semi-nude? This was clearly a two-film contract or something, and even her likable Italian fieriness is ill-served here. I mean, come on, they're in the sack again for the first time in years, and she's immediately talking babies and child-rearing? Yeesh, hit and run, Rock, hit and run. <laughs> What's your take? Yeah, it wasn't a great film. I, I I thought it would be fun, because it's now mid-60s, you know, and toward mm-hmm. late in the game for this kind of thing. And uh, so when I watched it for the show, I was like, look at all these familiar faces. Mm-hmm. Nancy Colt from TV and Joe Sirola, Bernard Fox from everything. You know, Bernard Fox was the British actor, character actor. Like, when you needed a Brit guy, like, <laughs> he'd be here. And uh, there was just so much. Jack Good. I mean, a lot of people don't know the name, but you know the face. It's just so many people in this film from American television. Mm-hmm. And um, Ever Judd. Oh, I liked Ever Judd, too. But the thing was, it's supposed to kind of move, and it's too long. Mm-hmm. And but you hit up, you hit upon a very interesting note, which and I agree with. They they toned down Gina Lola Bridges' sex appeal, mm-hmm. which is the high point of selling this kind of thing, you know, sexy woman and the guy. And it just, I don't know, just it was not a huge hit when it opened, mm-hmm. which was kind of probably a signal to everyone that. Maybe we should stop at this kind of thing. And actually, they pretty much did. Yes. This is one of the last of the, if we can say, Rock Hudson, like, sexy romantic comedies with women. Mm-hmm. Not that he did any with men, but you guys know, <laughs> know what you mean. Yeah, yeah the, actually, the very last one is the next one, same year, a very special favor. She's hopeless. Not completely. Remember, she has French blood. Her two aunts were the toast of Paris. Well, this one's been left in the toaster too long. She'll never pop. After Mount Everest, you don't settle for a sand pile. Of course, the thrill of climbing is in your blood. Let's go mountain climbing. I thought you just got back from the top of Everest. Oh, I don't expect to get to the top again. Just take me as high as you can. I'll understand. Strangely much akin to a Tony Curtis comedy like Sex and a Single Girl from a show on Curtis, this one's loaded with more pointed double entendres than a Whitesnake or Bon Scott ACDC album, but comes off strangely mean-spirited. 
Filled with cameos from era TV sitcom stars like F Troop and the Ghostbusters' Larry Storch and Batman's Chief O'Hara himself, Stafford Rep, this oddity features Rock as a sleazy trial warrior who wins cases by fucking the lady judges, earning the admiration of opposing counsel Charles Boyer of our Tony Perkins shows Is Paris Burning and our Jackie Bishop shows Casino Royale. Boyer has a problem. Not only does he hang around with the Clock King from Batman, Walter Slezak, but his estranged daughter, Levy Karen, also of Is Paris Burning, is an uptight psychologist and 30-year-old spinster about to marry sexist sissy and mama's boy Dick Sean, LSD and Hitler from the producers. Boyer, concerned about his daughter and her potential happiness, because of supposed lack of Frenchness, which just shows he never actually met a French girl that tends to be rather dispassionate and overthink everything, earthier variants like Bardot aside, recruits Rock to make his daughter a woman, which he proceeds to enact by all sorts of asinine trickery. Pretending he's a patient frightened by his nymphomaniac effect on the opposite sex and his supposed inability to turn them down, he gradually worms his way into her home in a date, where he goads her Gallic pride by comparing her unfavorably to other women, real or imaginary, in all sorts of ways, then into sousing it up, allowing him to gaslight the blackout drunk into thinking that she jumped his bones like a wild woman. When she finally starts second-guessing herself to the point of drinking herself into oblivion while on a date with Sean, he once again shows up, hauls her drunken ass away, and rinse repeat. This also catches the notice of Sean's prudish battle-axe of a mother, who freaks out when Sean brings her home to meet her new daughter-in-law-to-be, and causes such a tearful reunion with Boyer, who can't decide whether he's happy with Rock's, quote, success, or wants to kill him for making her a broken lush. Of course, he and or Slezak let slip who and how she's been played, so she turns the tables in a decidedly quick denouement, and just like that, Rock and Boyer are visiting now Rock's spouse, Karen, in hospital, where she's popped out about a dozen brats. Yay, this is how people got laid in the 50s. Whew. Karen isn't terrible in the Natalie Wood sort of role, and Rock is used to, well, much less sexually suggestive variants of this sort of bubbly nonsense from his Doris Day films, but this one just comes off strange. I sort of liked its comparative bluntness and highly forefronted sex humor, but I found myself equally put off by the sheer manipulativeness of all this, combined with that absurd family-friendly vibe, however the lines subvert that. Director Michael Gordon's only comparatively notable credits were directing one of the Boston Blackie and two of the Crime Doctor films, but he manages to pull off one of, if not the most loaded, of fluffy early 60s quote comedies here. What's your take? It's a weird one. It looked like, to me, like they were trying to capitalize on that then versioning uh, popularity of uh, European romantic films, mm-hmm. romantic comedies, uh, sexy movies that were starting to come over to America. That were already popular in France, let's mm-hmm. say. You know, hence Boyer, Lesicon, and uh, Yeah, maybe they're trying to do a Bordeaux film or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Maybe they were trying to do some kind of thing like that, a crossover. And they figure, like, Rock has done so many pictures with these other actresses, and they've been very popular to moderately popular. It's just like, I don't know. I, I found it to be a bit mean-spirited. Yeah. And watching it today... It's like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna get her drunk and then do this stuff. I'm like, yeah, it almost goes into me too territory. There's a lot of gaslighting. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's like if somebody ever put this out in a box set, they were like, I think we should skip this movie. (laughs) It's it's a lot of picture, and it, it would prove to be pretty much the last thing he would do like this. Yeah. So 1966, he does Blindfold. Mm. Philip Dunn, whose only notable directorial credit otherwise is our Elvis shows Wild in the Country, 
drops this odd cross between a spy film and one of those outdated bubbly 50s pseudo-rom-com things folks like Rock and Tony Curtis seem to specialize in. There was a bit of a thing for this at the time. Charade, Kaleidoscope, arguably our Sophia Loren shows Arabesque, at a stretch both our Mario Bava shows, Dr. Goldfit films, and the Matt Helm films. You can even say our Elvis shows Double Trouble, all working similar territory. Rock is a shrink recruited by crusty G-Man Jack Warden of our Michael Caine shows Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, our Al Pacino shows Injustice for All, our George Siegel shows Carbon Copy, and our Sandra Bullock shows While You Were Sleeping, to unlock the secrets stuck inside the head of Alejandro Ray of our Elba shows Fun in Acapulco, our Michael Caine shows The Swarm, and our Charles Bronson shows Mr. Majestic and Breakout, a scientist who broke down who has intel both sides of the Cold War want for themselves. Ray's sister, third-string Italian sexpot Claudia Cardinale, of our Charles Bronson shows Once Upon a Time in the West, Fellini's Eight and a Half, our Bridget Bordeaux shows Legend of Frenchy King, our Elliot Gould shows Escape to Athena, and our Klaus Kinski shows Fitzgeraldo, thinks Rock is the one who kidnapped Ray and turns him into the cops, and when that fails, tries to cause a scandal with the press, only for Rock to defuse things by claiming they're engaged and having some weird huge fight where she calls the cops on you and then tries to slander you all over the news. Time to kick that bitch to the curb. Brad Dexter of our Tony Curtis shows Terrace Bulba, our Frank Sinatra shows None But the Brave and Bon Ryan's Express, and our Tony Perkins shows Winter Kills and the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man's lovely, crusty J. Jonah Jameson Robert Simon are the cops that don't buy Rock's cover story. Well, Simon buys the story, Dexter doesn't. She claims to be a ballet dancer, but she's really a stripper, or for the prudes, a, quote, chorus girl, as if anyone would go to a CD club to watch Vegas line dancers, or that she'd get a lobby card standee that way. That's really all there is to this one worth discussing. The title refers to Rock trying to mentally recreate the sounds he heard while blindfolded and brought to the secret government location to work on Ray, so that they can get back there and both clear up the mystery and save the day. It's okay, but most or all the above reference films of similar nature were so much better than this. Lorraine was no Bordeaux, and Will Bridget are quite far removed from Lorraine, but Cardinal wasn't even in the same league, and Attractive also ran with a handful of decent films under her belt, who apparently is still out there trying to make a name for herself in movies you've never heard of, believe it or not. But yeah, I mean, I liked it enough. It's slightly Hitchcockian in a weird way, but yeah, it wasn't that great. What's your take? Well, yeah, it's it's slightly Hitchcockian, and you got to remember, like, so the Bond movies suddenly were the thing. Yep. So in the three or four years where the Rock Hudson Thursday hoity-toity-cutesy-tootsy movies <laughs> fell out of favor because nobody fucking cared, mm-hmm. Bond movies were big. Everything changed. You know, we had the Harry Palmer movies, so Michael Caine, yep. espionage films were the thing. So... Every even George Bapart, everybody was doing these things. Mm-hmm. So why not Rock Hudson? And you know what? This is one of the lesser ones, which is a shame because watching this, Rock was pretty good in it, but they tried to also lean it through sort of light touch. Mm-hmm. You, know? you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Having yeah. yeah, they they wanted to put a light touch to this. I think it would have been much better. Just going completely serious for this, for him as well as the audience. Mm-hmm. But doing a light touch means they want to have some kind of connection to the romantic comedies he was doing with all these other actresses, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, it's we're doing a Cary Grant show, and even Charade came off a lot better than this one. Similar idea, very much so, but... Yeah, similar idea, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Charade is a problem, too, because oh, yeah. Charade is something that should have worked. And it really doesn't, but it should have worked. Yes. 
and I, after all these years, I'm still trying to figure out, like, well, aside from the skinny crack, crack actress, uh, <laughs> well, everybody thinks it's amazing. What was that? Audrey, Audrey Hepburn? Hepburn, yeah. Uh, she weighed like 65 pounds. Like, yep. she's so beautiful. Like, yeah, okay. You scared me. Man. She's got a pretty face. She was likable there, but yeah, she's like a stick. I'm like, all right, whatever. I no, it's it. okay. No, I, I get people like skinny girls, but she was like, don't mess with that. You hurt. You hurt yourself. Um, um, it's true. The hips hurt when you. Yes. <laughs> too bony. Uh, yeah. If, if you've been with skinny girls, uh-huh. I know uh-huh. my ex-wife is a very skinny lady. Sometimes I'd be like, ouch. Yes. Um, it, it's true. It's like, oh, geez, put a little something on there, geez. Like, why am I involved with her? Not pay for comfort. <laughs> Anyway, so if <laughs> we got off track on this, so, uh, if this was taken seriously, this would have been a better film. I do like Claudia Cardinale. Yeah, I mean she's okay. I I actually like Lola Bridgette better than her, which, like I said, but you know both of them are like eh, they're so far below Lorraine, and Lorraine is so far below Bardot for me. And yeah, next. Next is an amazing movie. 1966 seconds. Rock and briefly Oscar from the $6 million man, Richard Anderson, are the only actors below retirement age in this unpleasant and inesthetic film, which on the surface appears to be about the geriatric attempting to have a do-over. A cross between a gender-swapped take on a Roman Polanski show's Rosemary's Baby and the talking head's surprisingly profound once-in-a-lifetime, this film from John Frankenheimer of our Frank Sinatra show's Manchurian Candidate is half about existential midlife crisis and half an attack on the inverse value system of the American Horatio Algemith dream. Mm-hmm. Many have taken this on a very base level as a savvy assault on post-war America, keeping up with the Joneses and advertising marketing with its endless focus on youth and irrational standards of success as defined by material wealth, and that certainly applies. But this is actually a more intelligent film than that. This is hardly an inverse madman for all the company's hard-sell tactics, shilling in demand for Sprint Telephone-style new client networking. The real story isn't so much about the screwed-up value system and mental and emotional manipulation purely for profit being shoved down our throats, as it is about a man who finally decides to sit down and reassess his life, driven to repeat his mistakes by a false alternative. It's like folks who aren't happy with Biden failing to fix all the problems that Trump and the Republicans caused for four years, so they turn around and hand another victory to the very evil shitheads who caused the problems and cock-block any efforts to make things right. False alternatives, false equivalencies. It's like running in circles, an idiot repeating measures that didn't work last time, thinking somehow that they'll get a different result this time. Rather than choosing to continue to stare into the mirror, which he does quite literally at the two crisis points in the film, bear the discomfort and seek existential authenticity and the resultant comfort in one's own skin that that brings no matter the external circumstances and situation, he buys the lie and assumes that a new, ostensibly, quote, younger face, cough, Botox and plastic surgery, will allow him to escape the person he is and the choices he made, but you can take the boy out of the country, you can't take the country out of the boy. And you can run all you want, but you can't run from yourself. It's an ugly film filled with Fellini-esque fisheye close-ups of inesthetic people, Hudson and the naked hippies at the Dionysian happening aside, and that's both appropriate and by design. I did not like this film, but it's very intelligent. It's uh, it's not a likable film. It's, no. it's a hard-to-watch movie. Yep. I think it's one of the most brilliant films ever made. I, I, I kid you not, it's probably my top 20. I can see you equating this with something like Altered States because it's that existential. Yeah, it's existential. You know, it's like also 
I think it really appealed to Rock Hudson, who was so Rock Hudson. You know, we we discussed this early on the game an hour or so ago, maybe more. He's a gay man. You know, she's working at Hollywood. He was like had to be the darling pop star. You know, everybody's regular guy, and this is a chance for him to make a movie where he's gonna go all in. All in. You know, I, I mentioned to you before, like John Frankenheimer has made some really fucking wild movies and, and uh, somebody worth taking a look at. And it's it's an unpleasant black and white, black and white movie made in 1966, unpleasant movie to watch because, okay, so John Randolph, who is recognizable from a lot of primarily television roles he's done this time period, is an overly middle-aged guy, he's got a wife, and so he is a banking, a bank executive, and then he hooks up with these mysterious people. So the deal is we give them enough money. You know, they get plastic surgery, but something else strange is going on. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about, yeah, right? Yeah. There's something else going on there besides the plastic surgery. And so this is... Uh, it's like a secret society kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's very so far ahead of its time. I thought this when I was a kid when I saw this. So far ahead of its time. I was like, I was fucked up watching this movie when I was a kid. Like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I was like, this is so weird. This is so bizarre. Mm-hmm. This is Rock Hudson. Yep. And so the guy goes through with this and it becomes Rock Hudson, you know, with the, you know, the stitches and everything. And But he misses his wife. Mm-hmm. Who was this woman? You know, she was the age of her husband. So, but the group now, they want you to to join the group Mm -hmm. of the people that also underwent this. Yeah, he finds the girl he thinks is like, okay, I'm falling for whatever. And she turns out to be another one of these people that went through the same procedure. And everybody he knows is part of the same group. It's like Stepper's wives. (laughs) Yeah, everyone he knows is part of the same procedure. And the, the the final denouement of the movie was shocking. Yeah. And and it was like Yeah, it goes kind of silent green esque. <laughs> yeah. And and it was like Wow. <laughs> My hat's off to you, Rock Hudson, for doing something like this, nineteen sixty six and and being ballsy. Mm-hmm. And also Frankenheimer and Hollywood. For being ballsy enough to do something like this. After the Manchurian candidate, mind. Which you're talking about, Frank Sinatra. After the the Manchurian candidate, which was a few years earlier, you really, you really, (laughs) I don't know what to say about this movie other than it shocked me. Mm -hmm. It's, It's still shocking. If you've not seen this movie, it's a shocking film. And it probably features. Going out on a limb here, Rock Hudson's most primeval performance as an actor, because he goes all out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he goes all out. So I was unable to see Tobruk, which may be sad, but uh, did you want to cover that one? Yeah, yeah, Tobruk. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, we watched, you and I watched a lot of these. Um, oh, I saw them on TV back when. The trick is, it's not even on streaming. There's no place that has this movie. It's like it doesn't exist. I own it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Tobruk, Tobruk is one of those, like, let's get the international uh, group of American, the British, and 
Irish and Italian guys are going, it's a big old G-man's kind of like... War film. We have to, yeah, war film. War War II North film. Africa, yeah. Yeah, North Africa. It's Arthur Heller, who's been working for years and years. He did the airport movies. He's got George Papar, Nigel Green, Guy Stockwell, Jack Watson. We all know Jack Watson. And uh, a bunch of other familiar names. It's fun. It's not terrific. And it's funny that, uh, yeah, it's set in North Africa. It's uh, it's about, it's a thing that we covered, I think, in the Burton Show about the uh, Bramels. Oh, yeah, we definitely, in the Burton Show, we did uh, two films that were set in that campaign. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bramels Africa Corps. They had, like, 90 miles to cover of, like, trying to get fuel. Bitter Victory was one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Better Victory was one. So this is like another one of those pictures. So after seconds, a couple of years later, I was like, let's try to make Rock like a uh, man's man, an action picture. Not entirely successful, but it, it's, a, it's a fun watch. So uh, 1968, Ice Station Zebra. Yeah. Rock leads a submarine expedition to the Arctic to find out what happened to a military research outpost who'd sent a distress call before going incommunicado. Mm-hmm. Of course, being based on an Alistair McLean novel, all sorts of spying and intrigue ensues. He's further directed to pick up a few passengers, inclusive of Danger Man and the prisoner himself, Patrick McGowan, and we talked those shows in that British cult television show, Ernest Borgnine about William Shatner and Satan in the 70s shows Devil's Reign, and Jim Brown of the Slaughter films, Three Tough Guys, Black Gun, and several other films in our exploitation show, and Jim Brown just passed recently too, all of whom appear to have their own agendas. After some surprisingly engaging submarine business as they attempt to submerge and cut their way up from beneath the ice shelf to reach the site, while Rock verbally fences with Magoon and, to a lesser extent, the other newcomers trying to suss out exactly what they're up to and why he was ordered to allow them to take part in the mission. There's a commie spy satellite that crashed near the research station, and Putin's pals, the proto version, are in pursuit trying to recover their photos of American and global military bases. Being the Cold War, despite a standoff, there's little actual action, though there are several twists and betrayals along the way. Honestly, this one isn't quite up to the usual McLean film adaptation. Stuff like Puppet on the Chain, When Eight Bells Toll, or Charlotte Rampling shows Caravan to Macars, and McLean knock off the Black Windmill from a Michael Caine show, are top-tier spy intrigue films with plenty of unexpected twists and turns. This one betrays its big-budget Hollywood origins, not only with some of the casting decisions and overly bright 60s television-style lighting and obvious sets, but in its ultimate lack of bite. One of the baddies is obvious from minute one. There's no real action once they get out of the sub, and if you aren't paying attention to all the verbal sparring, it's pretty sleepy, particularly once we get into the second act. Yes, it's long enough to have an entre-act intermission card and real change. (laughs) The Arctic sets are cheap and stagey, and while there's a whiff of the claustrophobic mystery that both the Howard Hawks and John Carpenter versions of The Thing delivered, and we had done a whole show on Carpenter, it's quickly diffused, and director John Sturgis, who delivered yet another McLean adaptation with The Satan Bug, as well as our Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland shows The Eagle Has Landed, really drops the ball as soon as they step outside the sub, or at least after they discover the adult survivors. Even so, it's a lot better than you may expect, and Rock delivers yet another solid lead performance as the skeptical and level-headed captain. What's your take on this one? Pretty much what you said. Yeah, uh, Rock Hudson, he's, he's really solid as a lead here. Yeah. John Sturgis is a really good director. And Alistair McLean, hey, no fault there. We both agree he's, he's done a lot of good stuff. I, I don't know what happened here. It's just it kind of like it, it has, how do you say, starts and stops. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. like, like, okay, it's got momentum. 
And then and then it drops the ball. And then drops the ball. Then it picks up some momentum, and then drops the ball. Yes. It's like Ernest Borgnine. He was the Russian guy. And and you know, Ernest Borgnine is you know, he was okay at doing accents. And and then Patrick McGowan. <laughs> <laughs> wow, when that guy gets intense. Oh, he's yeah. He was great. I don't know what was ever going on with him, whether it was chemical or non-chemical or... Well, we know he was a big drunk. <laughs> you can't do that kind of intensity on drunk. I don't know what was going on with Patrick, but when Patrick McGoon, like, turned up the uh, intensity to, like, 14, mm-hmm. and the amp level is 10, we all know that, right? Mm-hmm. And he turned up to 14 or 15. Like there, there's like a couple of scenes between Hudson and McGowan. I'm watching there. I'm like, Hudson's holding his own because McGowan's like going way out there. Yeah, that's actually I actually think that those scenes with uh, McGowan and him make this film as opposed to yeah. any of the ostensible action or you know any of the sets or anything else. It's really yeah. those two. I think one of the things the film lacks is action. Yes. It's a good. It's a good. Uh, What's better than what was that picture we covered with Sinatra and Fred Astaire? Is that the one where they were down in uh, in Australia, the apocalyptic one? Well, oh, it wasn't uh, Sinatra. It was uh, Gregory Peck. Yes. Yeah. Right, and and then there's and there's a similar there's a similar one with Gerald Butler, which I recently saw, and and I'm like, yeah, you could do this, but you need action. Mm-hmm. You need action to engage the audience. But, so, with these four name stars, and mm-hmm. a couple of familiar friends, Ger- Gerald S. O'Loughlin, mm-hmm. what a long name that guy had. He was in the Rookies TV show, remember him? And wasn't Tony Bill screwing Nancy Sinatra, so Frank was always trying to get him jobs for a bit there? Right, and Tony yeah. Bill was also a TV actor, and Tony mm-hmm. Bill was wound up being a producer, so much shit there. Yeah, a lot of interesting people in this. I don't think it's a terrible movie, it could have been better if they just put some action into it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, look, you know, it's tough with a submarine movie. Look at Atragon or, you know, there's a lot of these kind of things. It's always tough with a submarine movie, but, uh, yeah. you know, uh, McLean, McLean, Alistair McLean had done pretty, pretty well with mm-hmm. other things. Where, where are we going next? So I was going right to 1971 for Pretty Maze on a row. Oh, <laughs> Roger Vadim Infant Terrible of the Nouvelle Vague, the man behind Brigitte Bardot, who we did an entire show on, and director of at least one segment of our Bardot and Peter Fonda show Spirit of the Dead, Blood and Roses, and Barbarella, not to mention our Bardot shows Plucking the Daisy, a.k.a. Mammals of Striptease, and God Created Woman, Le Bijoutet de Claire de Lune, The Night Heaven Fell, Le Brad Sur Le Coup, Please Not Now, which is probably one of my favorite Bardot films, Repos du Guerrier, Warrior's Rest, also known as Love on a Pillow, and Don Juan, also known as If Don Juan Were a Woman, but probably most famed for betting and further marrying cult and art house film stunners Bardot, Anita Strindberg, Jane Fonda, Catherine Deneuve, the only one who didn't officially marry him, and Cousin Cousine and Stardust Memories, Marie-Christine Barreau, yeah. of our Charlotte Rampling show Stardust Memories in succession, directs this entertaining oddity where Rock is an ex-football player turned high school coach and guidance counselor, a bizarre career match if there ever was one. Rock is fucking every hot multiracial teen in the school, which include my girl. Think about that. Uh huh. Which include my girl Amy Eccles of Group Marriage, Brenda Sykes of our black exploitation shows Black Gun, Cleopatra Jones, Mandingo and Drum, Joy Bang of Night of the Cobra Woman, Messiah of Evil, and Play It Again Sam, 
So many people, yes. Childhood lust object, Joanna Cameron of Secrets of Isis and the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man's Deadly Dust two-parter. And Margaret... That made, that made you cry, didn't you? <laughs> and Margaret Markov of our exploitation and Pam Greer shows The Arena and White Mama, Black Mama. Meantime, there's a nerd who Rock takes under his wing and tries to get laid, mostly by convincing similarly promiscuous, large-headed old lady Angie Dickinson of our Frank Sinatra shows Ocean's Eleven and our Brian De Palma shows Dressed to Kill, another teacher without any compunctions about banging their students, to show him what his toolkit is there for. There's also a serial killer running around, killing all these hotties rock boss and the nerd lusts after. Which brings Telly Savalas of our Spanish horror shows Horror Express, our Mario Bava shows Lisa and the Devil, our Alva Reed shows Assassination Bureau, our trio of Bond shows Our Majesty's Secret Service, our Donald Sutherland and Clint Eastwood shows Killer's Heroes, our Charles Bronson shows Violent City, our Elliot Gould shows Capricorn One and Escape to Athena, and our Jess Franco shows Faceless. Jeez, we should do a Savalas show. She covered enough of his films already. Yeah, we should. We should. We should. Right down. I will. And Keenan, Hell Satan, win of our Dan Curtis and the Seventies shows, our Charlotte Rampling and Richard Harris shows Orca, our Full Moon Picture shows Laser Blast, and our John Saxon shows The Glove as the cops on the, the killer's trail. Savala's the typically savvy one, fencing with his target. Win is the blustery, gun-waving idiot, accusing all and sundry and winding up directing cars for it. There's a weird undertone to Rock and the nerds' relationship. You get the distinct sense that there's more going on here than just a random student-teacher counseling situation. Sure. They're a bit too close for that, particularly towards the end. And so once again, Rock and his directors keep dropping broad hints. It's a very typical 70s driving picture, like the sort of thing Crown International specialized in. Think like The Teacher or Malibu High, just with a lot of good-looking, long-haired, long-legged, post-hippie chicks with iron locks and free spirits. It's not sleazy enough to be exploitation, and the real lookers don't show much more skin than you can get away with on network or syndicated TV. But a few no-namers certainly try to make up for that, so you won't walk away too disappointed. We covered this one for our Roddy McDowell show because he has a very small part herein as the school principal. As does Scotty from Star Trek, James Doohan, but Blink and you miss them both. There's a lot of weird stars, maybe a bit too much comedy, and even lighter slasher film elements. But it's really all about these smoking hot lookers all in one film. And did I mention the script is by Star Trek man Gene Roddenberry, who gave us Genesis 2, Planet Earth, and Strange New World from our John Saxon show? I always liked this one, but I always appreciate Vadim's reasonably decadent films. For a director essentially straddling mainstream and art house, and the presence of Eccles and Cameron, not to mention several good-looking relative unknowns, makes this a must-see just on that alone. What's your take? Oh, I always thought it was a very strange, decadent movie. Mm-hmm. You know, um... What version did you see? Well, the most recent one that I'd seen for this and for the other show was the one that they put out on uh, Warner Burn. So I guess it's it should be uncut. I don't know. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was shocked when I saw this. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's a pretty much the one I saw. I was shocked when I saw this. I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, um, I knew of its existence, and I, I, I don't know. I, I never saw it when it was new, and... I was like, do I want to see this? Am I interested? While well, I like Euro stuff, and I don't know. I just never got around to it. And then like, I got one of those <laughs> Warner Archive things. That's the same one I got, yeah, from and years I ago. I was like, oh, the girls are very bushy, <laughs> which I like. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Unfortunately, not all the girls you want to see that way are, but you know, there's some in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's some. But I was like, oh, what a strange movie. Mm-hmm. We're making. Rockers and banging all these girls, and this is like really weird from the get go. Because even by this time, I, I knew enough about Rock Hudson 
But then again, the film was made in 1971, so it wasn't common knowledge. And 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 it's just so weird. <laughs> I, it, it's just very strange movie. I didn't like it though, in a way, because I I just felt like it was like um. <sighs> what a tease. <laughs> No, I think it could have been made better. Yeah, it just straddles too many genres. There's too much humor in there. It's trying to be like a drive-in sexploiter. It's trying to throw in some slasher elements. You know, you've got Savalas there, but then you got Keenan Wynn basically being the buffoon, like you're watching Andy Griffith or something. It, it's all over the place. But, yeah, there's so many girls in there, and so many that I was like, hmm, okay, wow, John Cameron's in this? Ooh, Amy Eccles? Hmm. You know, so I was like, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I always like this one because of that. Where are you going next? Unfortunately, I could not see Embryo. I don't know if it's even out. So do you want to talk about that one? Or? Oh, my God. Yeah. Go for it. Embryo. <laughs> Embryo is a Ralph Nelson, and a controversial director. He didn't work too often. You know, he directed the Requiem for Heavyweight, Rod Steiger, Lily's The Field, with Sidney uh, Poitier, Soldier in the Rain, Jackie Gleason, and Steve McQueen, Once a Thief with Delone, only American film, I think. Soldier Blue. So he didn't work too much, but when he did, he decided to shake it up. So in this one, Embryo, <laughs> Rock Hudson's a geneticist who loses his wife in a car crash, and his his uh, sister-in-law is Diane Ladd, and she's like, becomes his assistant. She's like, don't knock yourself over, over, over again, over things. But one night, he runs over his uh, pregnant Doberman Pinscher, mm-hmm. injures the dog, but manages to save the dog using one of his experiments, and the dog lives. Okay. So, like, he's really trying to revive his wife. So, he finds a suicide victim and manages to regrow her embryo. Now, this is where the movie gets tricky. We'll never get... This is why it's hard to find this movie. It grows up to be Barbara Carrera. Okay. Like hottie Barbara Carrera. Yeah, I remember, yeah. And he fucks her. That's <laughs> about the movie. And, wow. and this is like one of the one of the things like the chemistry between Rock Hudson and Barbara Carrera was very palatable. I'm like, oh, maybe they got the stuff wrong with Rock. <laughs> because she, she, she suddenly with the other movies where the embryo grows to like adulthood really quickly it was a lot of movies like oh that. like clonus and all that yeah yeah and and within within days it becomes an adult mm-hmm. but but then she starts to age and that becomes right. an issue Barney McDonald's in this mm-hmm. which kind of like goes full circle to the movies Roddy used to play in with Rock when he was Doing those Doris Day kind of things. Mm-hmm. It's a weird movie. It's a very dark film. Uh, very sexualized film. She kills him. She stabs him to death. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she's pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird, fucked up movie. But I, I always liked Embryo because, like, wow, you're going to go to places I never thought you would go. Yeah, and I always liked Barbara Carrera in those days anyway. Like, uh, what was that one she was in with Michael York where they redid Alan with Dr. Moreau? <laughs> Like she's a lot of strange things. Of course, you know, Dawn. Well, yeah, that was Alan Love Dark Tomorrow, mm-hmm. whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Avalanche? So yes, nineteen seventy eight Avalanche. One of the only films from T V director Corey Allen, but it's a damn good one. 
Unless you're talking the sheer comedy of the airport films, all of which I'd reviewed in great detail over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com, here we have my favorite and likely the most entertaining, if not best, of all 70 Starfucker disaster films in the Irwin Allen mold. Really? Despite having precious few actual stars to bring in the punters. Yeah, true. Rock is a rich fuck, I believe an architect, <laughs> who just built a new ski resort and is breaking it in. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, he's just built a ski resort, and he's breaking it in by hosting his own de facto Winter Olympics, both a ski competition and a finger skating one. Crazy Mia Farrow, whose own son testified against her in the Woody Allen matter, as being both an abusive parent and a psychotic bitch who manipulated, or as he put it, brainwashed her kids, used Sunyi as a scapegoat for her own issues, and pulled shit like locking them in closets and outdoor sheds overnight, dragging them downstairs and throwing heavy glass objects at the young Sunyi. Yeah, I don't believe a word she ever said, and always thought that she was a psycho, even in Sinatra Rosemary's Baby days. Is Rox a strange ex-wife, a reporter who walked out on him because, quote, he was a control freak. Hmm, pot calling the kettle black there. For whatever reason, he's trying to get back together with this loon, who's sort of got a thing going with random environmentalist Robert Forster of our Roddy McDowell and Tony Perkins shows The Black Hole, Bill Lustig's typically early 80s New York opus Vigilante, our Chuck Norris shows The Delta Force, our Pam Greer shows Jackie Brown, and a host of low-rent direct-to-video sequels like Maniac Cop 3, I think, Scanners The Showdown, Body Chemistry 3, and Lustig's Uncle Sam, who warns her and Rock that the resort is structurally unsound due to the area being prone to the titular avalanches. Of course, Rock just blew a ton of money on this, so he's holding parties and those big events despite that, until things take the expected turn when his dumbass business partner has to fly in during a snowstorm and crashes the Cessna into the mountain. Plenty of fun and unintentional laughs ensue. Jeanette Nolan of our Tony Curtis show's Chamber of Horrors in the Manitou, and the voice of Mother from our Tony Perkins show Psycho, is rock saucy drunk of a mother, who at times almost makes the picture, but that's about it for quote, stars. If they can corral the usual gaggle of washed-up 50s and 60s TV faces and third-rate 1940s B-movie stars, this one would definitely have a much bigger reputation than it actually does, but the film itself stands on its own merits and is in fact far more aesthetic and enjoyably entertaining than any higher-profile film of its ilk, though without Chilly Winters and Irwin Allen's notice touch for the overdramatic, it doesn't bear the same measure of laughs as they tend to, much less the comedic lows of the airport series. I always really liked this one. Wow, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> There, there was a picture like this, but Robert Shaw, I forget what it was called, toward the end of his life. That was avalanche, but obviously not this one. <laughs> so I had to go look back and say, oh, there's this one. And you're right. It, it's it's more entertaining than you thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually a surprisingly solid film. Like, who knew, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it'd be one of the last of the five feature films Rock Hudson would make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 1980, The Mirror Cracked. We covered this one in our Tony Curtis show. Yes, we did. This steaming turd of a take on Agatha Christie for the geriatric garden party set, and those who wish they were, doesn't only suck some major ass, <laughs> it's very likely led quite directly to that awful murder-she-wrote crap that your grandma made the family suffer through back in the 80s. The warbly voiced future self of Blowsy Ethel Merman and star of Gypsy, Sweeney Todd, and Auntie Mame herself, Angela Lansbury, kicks off her career as a half-wit Miss Marple by playing the real thing, an obnoxious old know-it-all who makes everyone and everything she walks into her fucking business. Oh joy, we're always so glad to have one of these around. 
She lives in some backwards, sub-New England hell where church bazaars are the big excitement of the year. Oddly enough, complete with sack races and maple dances. Yeah, worship that penis. Nothing like pagan fertility rights sponsored by the church. Unfortunately for the viewers, this isn't a five-minute scene in a much better film. No. Did you say worship that penis? <laughs> yes. <laughs> why, why would a church have a maple dance? Do you not understand what that... Oh, whatever. <laughs> uh, oh. no, no, this backwater village has been location scattered to serve as the setting of a comeback movie for, talk about meta, a pair of washed-up big-screen diva rivals, Liz Taylor and Kim Novak. Kim nails Liz for being a fat drunk. Liz slams Kim for being a cheap tart and not too sharp of attack. Yeah, it's pretty real world and catty. The Christie part comes in when some fangirl in the crowd drinks poison wine meant for Liz, and the big reveal is that Liz isn't the target, but the poisoner. <gasps> More hilariously, Liz went after this rando because, get this, she knew the girl who once infected our Richard Burton show's several-time lesser half with measles, which caused the gravid cow's kid to come out all kinds of fucked up. Oh, and she had the first of poison of blackmail who knew about all this and herself before it all comes out. I shit you not, that's the plot. Rock is in this more than Tony Curtis was, but they're also rivals, as they're the respective hubbies, and in Tony's case, producer, of Liz and Kim. Tony hams it up as usual, but Rock pretty much plays the girl role here, gossiping, fretting, and generally being useless and getting in the way at every turn. He probably loved the part. Nearly unwatchable, unless you're in this purely for the cattiness. What's your take? Uh, it just, just wasn't a great time for these Agatha Christie pictures. Nah. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> so the same year, 1980, The Martian Chronicles. We covered this one in our Roddy McDowell show. Enjoyable, if slow-moving, and pensive miniseries that speaks directly to the Republican Elon Musk fanboy contingent who really believe that they can continue to fuck up this planet and leave us to suffer through the consequences while they fuck off to Mars to ruin that one as well. As you might expect, there are several separate stories involved and interweaved here, along with by far my favorite Spider-Man, Nicholas Hammond, where he visits what appears to be his old hometown and long-dead relatives, only to find that it's a long-standing Martian trap left for future invaders. One with our Dan Curtis shows Kolchak himself, Darren McGavin, opening a Western-style saloon. One with Fritz Weaver and Roddy McDowell as priests, who, at least in Weaver's case, have a psychotic break where they think they see Jesus. And interestingly enough, two with Rock, the first with our exploitation and trio of James Bond shows Bernie Casey, where ex-military man Casey finds ruins that suggest some loneliness parallel to humanity, and goes Vietnam vet-style PTSD AWOL, and another where he and Roddy wound up hanging with our Mission Impossible and Space 1999 shows Barry Morris, who built himself a robot family. As you can see, there's a lot of existential commentary about loneliness and the human condition being put across here under the guise of science fiction. It's a sort of heady, hard sci-fi that no longer exists thanks to juvenile-minded hacks like George Lucas, which we discussed in our Sci-Fi with the Message slash Sci-Fi in the 70s show. It's slow-moving, but well worth the time. And while Rock and, to some extent, Roddy are more passive observer types watching their fellows collapse and fall into the strain of isolation, it's not really about colonizing Mars, folks, but the angst and lack of connection of modern society and what it's doing to us collectively and as individuals. Both, therefore, get a lot more screen time than their fellows. A good capper to his career, though, he did star in a few TV movies nobody ever heard of thereafter, likely to pay his medical bills. So, what's your take? Oh, it's, it's, it's really good, and... I'm surprised nobody has revisited the Martian Chronicles. It's kind of dour. It's kind of deep, serious, but it's mm -hmm. probably one of those few things that are really closer to what Richard Matheson intended mm -hmm. than you would think. Yeah, we covered a lot of Matheson stuff in the uh, Dan Curtis in the 70s show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good. You know, and 
The whole cast is pretty decent. The whole cast is pretty much on point, including Rock Hudson. Yes, of course. And you want to make note of McMillan and wife. Oh, yeah, we didn't mention that, uh, except in the beginning. So from, I think it was 1971 or two to about 77 or 8, yeah. he starred on TV as, what was his first name? Stuart. Stuart McMillan, that was it. A Scottish police commissioner in San Francisco. And his, I always find her really sexy, but you wouldn't think that. She was more just kind of like a dotty, not really Bardot-ish, but that sort of really likable personality. Susan psychic. Really? Susan St. James, yeah. Likeable psychic, sort of a female personality type. I always really had a thing for her, especially when she was doing McMillan and Wife back then. And she actually goes through, because it's a lot of years involved, and apparently she kept getting pregnant, a lot of different hairstyles. You know, the earlier ones are obviously nicer, especially when she goes really long, hippie. And she, at one point, wound up getting written off the cast. And it was funny, because she'd be pregnant, and you figure, okay, they're going to have to write this into the show. And thankfully they didn't. They would just drop it and forget it next season. And then they'd be back, like, square one, until I think it was the very final season when they just dropped it and went McMillan. And there was a big change in tone there, where all of a sudden, instead of being this kind of... It was almost like trying to be a 1970s version of that Mr. and Mrs. North show from the 50s, but without... You know, Rock was not a dick like Richard Denning. It was just, he was kind of exasperated by her, but she was always kind of cute and trying to solve stuff like a, an adult Nancy Drew, I guess. And Nancy Walker was on there, like I mentioned, who became a gay icon. She was involved with, I think she actually directed her. No, wait, she didn't direct, she produced Can't Stop the Music, the Village People movie. Oh, she directed that. <laughs> Did she? Because oh, I remember Alan Carr was involved with that. Maybe he produced and she directed it. Yeah, she directed that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, but she was really big on gay rights. I think she had a brother or somebody that was gay. And early, we're talking about in the 70s, she was very big and very visible with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time of like Anita Bryant and all these assholes who were like very much against, she was very open about this stuff. And she was the you know typically brassy, opinionated maid. Serves, of course, in the Greek chorus and a much more likable version of Hazel. Those of you who remember that yep. show. Or even Alice from the Brady Bunch without being so like schmaltzy. And, you know, I just thought it was loads of fun. I always loved this show. And they even had another, I guess the male analog to Nancy Walker, was Stewart's sidekick, Sergeant. I actually called him Sarge all the time. John Shuck, yeah. who didn't do a hell of a lot after that, but he was always like where he wound up. And, you know, he was just kind of like a bumbling idiot, but a really likable one. <laughs> you always kind of rooted for him. Uh yeah, and that's basically it. It was a typical, if you watch a lot of these kind of detective shows from the era, it wasn't as gritty, if you want to call it that, as a Starsky and Hutch. It wasn't as po-faced and almost noir-esque or hard-boiled as like a canon. Yeah. It wasn't as, you know, socially motivated and turgid as like Ironsides or the Boss Squad could be. It was just a nice, uh, not really fluffy, but, you know, I think we actually covered an episode in our Satan the 70s show because they did uh, The Devil You Know or something where, uh, oh, I forget who the hell that was. He was also in uh, The Devil's Reign, was actually a senator who made a deal with the devil to win. <laughs> and they actually thought yeah. that Sally, uh, you know, Susan St. James was their goddess reincarnated and they got kidnapped her and was trying to gaslight uh, Nancy Walker. Loads of fun. We talked that one in that show. But there was a lot of episodes, like, not necessarily like that, but there were just loads of fun. It wasn't your typical detective show of the time. So what do you want to say about this one? Well, you know, there there was a there was a time when... Um... Oh, and I will also say that Susan St. James running around in his football jersey, he's supposed to be an ex-football player, too, all the time in here, like, you know, made me, like, have a thing for that. <laughs> you know, like, girls running around in your clothes. <laughs> Guys' clothes. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I had a thing for her from a very young age. <laughs> Obviously, that went away when she started doing, like, you know, Scarecrow Mrs. King or all that was later on, but, you know. Oh, I never watched those. I th- well, no, it's not. I, I, I think I watched a few. I, I just didn't grab me. Yeah, no, nah, I didn't do anything much. But I can't, I can't really comment on those because I just didn't watch enough of them. So I'd, I'd be kind with those. There was a time when uh, I know it wasn't all three networks, but at least two of them would do these things like Banachek. Oh, yes, where they, they had yeah. that annoying girl there came out as a sidekick in the second season. Yeah, so yep. was, they would do, like, four things. It was Banachek, McLeod with Dennis Weaver. Banachek had George Brevard. And McLeod early on had, uh, what was that, Mercedes McCambridge or somebody? Yeah, could uh, be. Yeah, somebody likable was like his uh, and, lover slash sidekick. And there was another. Yep, Columbo. several of them. Columbo. Oh, yeah, well, there was a Mrs. Columbo, but that's terrible. Yeah, yeah, it was a Columbo. <laughs> with Kate Mulgrew from, uh, what was she, a Voyager, Star Trek? <laughs> yes, yes. And then along with the McMillan wife, that group had a bunch of other ones, too. This one's almost a template for that. Yeah, yeah, this was one of the more successful ones. A Jigsaw. Jigsaw was one with Robert Foster. We just mentioned Robert Foster. Jigsaw was one that also didn't have a sustainability. The only one out of all these that actually managed to make it until he got too sick to work anymore was Columbo with Peter Falk. But, and, and McLeod to an extent. Yeah, but McMillan and wife lasted all through the 70s pretty much. That was yeah, a yeah. seven year, eight year run. Yeah, yeah, seven year run. Uh, not consecutive though either. And it's funny, I'm looking at, I'm looking at this stuff and <laughs> where, what has happened to her? <laughs> because because she she did get, you're right she got pregnant three times during the run of the of the series from, all right so they shot it in, say 70 71 the last one was shot in late 1976 and she was pregnant three times and you're right there are times where she's visibly pregnant and they never address it yeah i mean very much so at one point where they had to say like oh yeah whatever but then just nothing happens they come back next season and it's just like back to normal <laughs> Very Which, stuff. in a way, I appreciated, but it was like, oh, that's odd. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you have to deal with things sometimes. Yeah. Where are we going about Rock? Well, that's it, because really, after that, he just did a couple of TV movies, and there were strange ones that I don't think anybody even saw. The Super Stunt, The Star Maker, World War Three, The Ambassador, and The Vegas Strip War, which you know he'd done when he was pretty much in his last legs. Yeah, uh, done his last legs. He appeared nine episodes in Dynasty. Apparently, his final yes. role. It said. I don't know beyond that, so I, I, I won't hazard a guess, but... Uh... I think they had to pull him from Dynasty because, you know, they wrote, wrote the character off because he was just too sick. They couldn't do anything anymore. Right, right, yeah. He be. was supposed to continue, but... So, yeah, he, he passed in October 1985, age 59, which is young. Mm-hmm. And, uh... Yeah, and like I said, this is an era when they were covering this stuff up that somebody was gay or that they, especially if they had AIDS and they died of that, you know, Liberace was covered up. Um, sure. Freddie Mercury was covered up. Other people, like I said, like Klaus Nomi or whatever, they were like, okay, well, he's kind of fringe. We just won't talk about him. But Rock was the first one that, you know, came out and said, hey, by the way, I've been gay and, oh, I'm dying of this horrible new disease. And because he did that, because he made it public, it changed the game. It, it did, changed it from it this 
obscure, you know, gay cancer thing that everybody just kind of like pretend it wasn't there and made it into a, I don't say call celebrity. It got money towards AIDS research and so on and so forth. It made it a, a public, people started protesting and trying to get money for it and trying to change things, you know, change the messaging. This is really, in a lot of ways, down to rock because of who he was. Yeah. No, no, I agree a thousand percent. Yeah, he knew he was dying and... He just said, let me come out and say I'm dying. And people came out of the woodwork and tried to help him in his last days. And uh, I remember those horrendous photos of him being airlifted. Mm-hmm. You you might, too. I do, actually, yeah. As yeah. soon as you said that. Yeah, he was being airlifted from, uh, gosh, I think they even used uh, U.S. military aircraft from wherever he was. Yeah, it was like in France or something. Yeah, yeah and, and he was he was just like skeletal and, and just like on his last legs and, and it was just like, you know. I think they did use some kind of like, you know, U.S. one or some crap like that because somehow he was friends with or had done things with Nancy Reagan. So mm-hmm. somehow the Reagans were with him, Possibly. even though, you know, they were so like, don't say gay and all that crap back then. Uh, I guess just since they knew him so well, it was like, well, it's Rock Hudson. What are we going to do? Let's you know, help him out. So. It's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's our Rock Hudson show. And, uh, yeah. you know, we respected the man. We still mm-hmm. respect the man. And he did a lot of fun work. He did a lot of entertaining films. We hope you enjoyed this one. Yeah. Yeah. When you first suggested this, I'm like, geez, he did all those like, Taurus Day movies and stuff. How's this going to go down? But. It actually wasn't that bad. I mean, because, you know, a lot of those are just ridiculously stupid and entertaining in a campy way. And then he did some stuff that was like, oh, I actually like this one. I mean, this was really yeah. interesting. So, sure. you know, he, he had an interesting body of work, more so than a guy that we'll be doing soon, Cary Grant. But, you know, obviously Cary did a lot more good, quote unquote, films that were fun. Uh, you know, a lot of screwball comedy classics and things. Yeah, I remember you texting me saying, why, why are we doing this again? Because <laughs> I hit so many movies like, Oh my God! What the hell? Especially because I was doing some towards the end, like Walk Don't Run, and like, oh wow! <laughs> and then I hit some of the early ones, like uh, uh, what was it Blonde Venus or whatever? I'm like, oh jeez. So, <laughs> yeah, but then <laughs> but, you, you know, hit I'm hitting slightly like better Mr. work. Mr. Lucky, which is really good. Yeah, and of course he did those Hitchcock films, and he did like the screwball comedies, like I mentioned. There's a lot of good stuff in there. He's yeah. just had a long career, and just... but anyway. So yeah, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drama chat on Rock Hudson. Next time we'll actually be doing something that I wanted to do because I was watching a lot of them on French crime films. Yes. Yeah, you know, and we had previously done some stuff. We talked about Eddie Constantine. We did a show on him, and of course we've done some Bordeaux films, some of which were you know crime based. And we had done a film on Ville de France where we were doing French cult directors. And we had done a section on Max Picus's early crime films. So now we'll be talking about people like Melville and a lot of, you know, Bombondo films and a lot of Alain Delon films. Some of these things we'd already covered in our uh, Charles Bronson and uh, Tony Perkins shows recently. But we'll be touching on those again in greater detail and as they fit in with the rest of these. Yeah, so that will be our next show. Yeah, yeah, bring bring a cooler full of beer because I don't think it's going to be a short one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're not doing everything. I'll give you a list of films that I want to cover. So, yeah. yeah. And we're not doing all of Melville, too, because we also discussed that. I was like, do you really want to do, like, whatever it is, eight, nine films? So we we narrowed it to his last three because I think they were his most, I hate the word, but iconic. You know, everything's encapsulated there. I think they're more entertaining in a lot of ways. Basically, all his color films towards the end. So, anyway. 
Thanks for joining us tonight. And if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. And of course, we're on Podbean, thirdcinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. You can look us up there and on Spotify and on Amazon Podcasts and other things like, I think, Stitcher. There's a whole bunch of places you can find us under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. And iTunes, if you're particular, is ID 55340244. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to close out on? No, I, you know, I never do that. When I when I do my uh, my Podbean thing, I don't like, you know, because Podbean has this long-ass fucking numbers. I just say, oh, I'm on Podbean. <laughs> <laughs> but I probably should give them a number. But the, will people really type all that in? You know, <laughs> you never know. Some people are really particular. So I'm like, look, basically you can just look it up under the you know the network. But you right. can also do this if you if you prefer to do it that way. You're specific. You're having trouble finding it or whatever. There you go. There's the number for it. But yeah, you're right. Pod, Podbean has these like long-ass freaking, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, thank you for, for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, no, we are very respectful. We very much enjoyed the career of Rock Hudson. Yeah. And he's an icon, mm-hmm. you know, of cinema. There's a reason why we do things like this. We don't we don't poke fun at people. We we just like, hey, let's do Rock Hudson, you know, because I think it was my idea, your idea. Who was yeah, that? Right? I think it was yours, yeah. Yeah, because it was like, you know what? Growing up, he was everywhere. With Doris Day, with Tony Randall, and as I got older, it's like these things were still around on television, <laughs> and and we grew to know more about the man. And you know, when you know more about him and who he was, it casts a different light, becomes more interesting. Yeah, because we're interesting in what he's doing and the work he's doing and the films he's doing, and and then you start noticing all these lines that they're throwing all these innuendos into this, like in yeah. these Doris Day movies, like. Whoa, they're really kind of like throwing some broad hints here. <laughs> but you wouldn't have seen that if you didn't know. So I was like, and I kind of felt bad for him in a way, seriously, because like good-looking, strapping young guy, mm-hmm. strapping fellow, and and like Hollywood is like, well, you have to do these kind of parts. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of like their himbo thing. And in a way, they did the same thing with Tony Curtis early on. But he's more of, you know, he was a Bronx boy. You know, he's more of a mouthy, you know, he'll push his way in and get stuff done regardless. Right. Now, you give it to him, but he's going to take it one way or the other. So he was fine. Somebody like Rock was a Midwesterner. And, you know, he had different issues because obviously he had a, quote, secret life going on. And, you know, he had trouble remembering his lines. It's a little different. It's a little harder for someone like that. And yet, because of who he was and because of the roles that he was in, because he became such a, an American icon of the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s, more impactful when things came out later and could help a lot of people after that. And honestly, that's, that's what the bottom line comes down to. Yeah. So, you know, when you suggested these people, I'm like, Really? But, you know, when you think about it, I, I never agree to cover somebody that's just like, oh, God, this person sucks. Unless there's something really interesting there, like, hmm, maybe I should reassess this. And, you know, these people are among those. So I was definitely glad we did this one. When you were talking this, I know at one point I was like, ah, I could probably get the Cary Grant stuff easier, but there's more of it. And then I was like, you know what? Let me start watching some of these Rock Hudson ones, just get some out of the way. And I was like, oh, that was pretty good. Oh, that was better than I remembered it. Well, that's interesting. And then that's why I was like, you know what? Let me just get that one done first. Oh, so we swapped back and forth a couple times. 
match. That's what I was like. Yeah, rest in peace, my cousin. Because yeah. uh, unfortunately, you changed the world and you changed the outlook on the AIDS. Yeah. And you had somebody that was known for fluffy comedies and yet you had a big impact in the end. So. You had a big, big impact, Jeremy. And uh, wherever you are, God bless. Yeah. We also said So, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time for our French crime film show. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. All right. Take it easy. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery and try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio.
Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some harder and lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. Hold on. I was listening to King Crimson from Asbury Park, 1974. Interesting. Yeah, that was actually one of the Mine's well, a big echo on my voice. Uh, <laughs> are you hearing it? No. Interesting, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I'm really hearing it. It's horrible. Uh, but, yeah, I was actually just playing, uh, believe it or not, White Lion. It was running through my head. I had a promo from uh, when Mike Tramp was over at SOU. God knows, many, many years back, probably in the mid-'80s. And uh, he sang, he made the promo for him, and he was, like, singing parts of, like, Broken Heart, but, like, you know, kind of screwed around with it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I haven't heard this song in a long time. And you know, I don't pull out, uh, I don't know if you want to call that glam, but, you know, I know nowadays they call it glam, metal, metal, whatever. I don't pull that stuff out too much. You know, I was playing Rat a couple of months back because I hadn't heard Dancing on a Carver in years. So I'm playing this. I'm like, geez, what the hell ever happened to them? Because their first album, Fight to Survive, unless you count that horrible, like, closing track to that, a ballad on the road to Valhalla, it's so solid. I mean, it's a good straight-up metal album. And Vito brought it. I don't know what the hell happened to him. He gave up playing guitar or something. He was so good. I mean, he was like somewhere between Eddie Van Halen and uh, Kira Takasaki from Loudness. 
And I'm playing these songs like, geez, some of these things are really rocking. You know, Fight to Survive and El Salvador. And geez, it, there's a whole bunch in there. Like I said, Broken Heart was another killer. So I'm playing that, and that was going on right before you, when you like first ping me. Plus, I'm trying to one-handedly download like promos because I, you know, I get I'm getting a little behind, obviously. So <laughs> I'm like fighting all that shit. But yeah, lots of fun trying to do everything one-handed here. So how are you doing? Uh, past week, I had, uh, you know, you know, me and my sinus condition, you know, yeah. out of nowhere, it's just like, and, you know, I'm sitting at the desk working, and it's just constantly runny nose, you know, that thing, and then the teeth start in. Mm-hmm. First, I thought it was, like, a tooth or teeth, and then, like, well, the bottom's hurting, too. <laughs> you know, I got it so, I, you know, it's just so bad with me that when it gets like this... It's just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take a Tylenol, one of those 500 milligram ones, and uh, mm-hmm. 650, actually. Wow. Okay. I remember somebody told me one time, they don't exist, Lou. And I'm like, they do. They don't exist, Lou. And I couldn't find them for a long time. And then I was looking one day and said, yeah, they do. There they are. <laughs> yeah, I never went that hard. I just take one, you know, early in the day. and But, uh when was the last time I talked to you? A couple of weeks ago? Yeah, a couple weeks back. There was that thing uh, which you probably sort of post about uh, uh, last week. <laughs> I noticed some of my meds like, oh, I've got two or three left. Okay. <laughs> and I remember when I went to Hoboken to fill them, I really liked the CVS and mm. you know, Adnan's, but CVS, blah, blah, blah. And they said, we'll let you know when they're due. And I'm like, well, I haven't heard from them. Oh, you did mention this one, right? I think you said it on here last time. Is there some kind of business where you went there and then they never killed your prescriptions? You went to the new place and then they said, oh, no, it's already filled over the other one? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, so we did yeah. talk about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah so I'm still waiting. The medicinal grade fish oil, well, I'll just take regular for now. And mm-hmm. But the cholesterol pills, it always seemed like they gave me more than 30 count, but the label says 30 count. So I'm lucky either that or I've missed like 10 days. <laughs> Those are tiny, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, I think I can make it to mid-June. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I was smart enough to get my doctor to refill my blood pressure pills mm-hmm. way in advance before I actually needed them. Right. But as soon as my thing changed to Aetna, I was like, yeah, you know, fill this. Fill this over there at CBS, yeah, you know? Right. So I'm, I'm good with that. That's the most important one. You can't, like, I don't have any blood pressure pills, you know? <laughs> All right, so yeah, I talked about that. So you you know about the Mother's Day dinner? Yes, right. right. But, uh, so yeah, we're pretty much caught up. Yeah, just sign this thing, and you you you've got a new arm. Well, not a new arm, but <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it's funny because you know the whole story. I think I might have mentioned parts of it on here. The endless process. I met this woman. See, I had this old old war injury here, as I call it. Uh, I, I assume it was from my bodybuilding days. It was definitely at least, you know, 20-some-odd years ago that this happened, whatever happened, because I'd always notice, ah, fuck, something's wrong with my shoulder. The shoulder's always bad. You know, I'd feel it when I did certain things, and I had to eventually start slowing down with the weights, and then I had to stop, and I would come back, and every once in a while I'd try to do it again, and I'd get to it for a little bit, maybe a week or so, and then it would start acting up again, and it was really bad. So, And you feel like the bones grinding against each other, and it was like a little bit of pain and all shit. So... And then it was other stuff like, you know, we do like, um, 
just like these stupid like Wii games and crap. And this is even before like when the Wii first came out, you were in like a, a worse buy, like and then there's something where you're throwing darts or bowling or something. I was like, jeez, it like bugs me when I you have to do something sharp like that when you you're like tossing and then pull back, you know, like you would do when you're throwing a dart. And I was like, what the hell? Yeah, whatever. So gradually limiting things and stopping things and whatever. All right, fine. But all of a sudden, it got to the point where it was like impacting everything. Like I'm going to open the door, and I'm like, ah. You know, I'm trying to reach over my head to grab something for my wife out of the cab. It's like, ah! And it was like weird shit, you know, pulling stuff, pushing stuff, and opening the trunk, throwing out the garbage. I'm like, this is not going to work. i got to do something here. But, I, you know, there's no way I was going to get one in a fucking hospital, that's for sure. I had some horrible experiences with that stuff with my father and even that sinus operation I had decades ago. Well, actually, that wasn't decades ago, but it was a long time ago, 12 years, probably 15 years. So we ran into somebody, we do this community garden thing, and we're actually like, yeah, you you mentioned her probably. Yeah, yeah, we're tearing the place up, because it was the end of the season, you know, they want you to clean it out, and have it ready for, if if you're not going to come back, the next guy doesn't have to do a whole bunch of work to clean it. Right, and you said that she was older, and she had no problem. Yeah, I mean, she's, I'm not sure how old she is, but I would have to bet she was at least in her mid to late 60s, and she's like, they're in a sling, and I'm like, yeah, what the hell happened, right, because there's somebody, you know, my wife is how she is, and so she's always, like, helping around with stuff. Like, oh, yeah. You know, she was new to planting. She was telling all those tips, and I helped her out with some crap, whatever. So, oh, okay, so she's all friendly. And we were talking to her. I'm like, what's going on? What happened? I was like, oh, yeah, I had this operation the other day, because her arm's in a sling. And uh, I was like, you're here, like, a day or two later? I was like, oh, yeah, and she takes it out of the sling and starts, like, swinging it around. I'm like, see, I got my arm fixed. I was like, I had this, all these problems with my arm. I couldn't reach for nothing. I'm pulling nothing. I was like, I'm having the same kind of fucking problem, but, you know, I know, you know I didn't talk to anybody, but, you know, because I had a friend that was a professional wrestler and all this kind of crap, and so I know I had a rotator cuff injury. That was not a question to me. I never had it looked into otherwise. I was just like, I've got this. And she's like, yeah, you know, I had, I had the same thing, basically. And I went to this one guy, and he just did this operation. It was fantastic. You know, it wasn't even like a, you know, it was like an inpatient job. And he's like, yeah, I really didn't feel much pain. And here I am, like, two days later, I got no problem. So I was like, really? Seriously? And she's, like, showing me. She showed me a little tiny scars, which are nothing. I was like, okay, what's this guy's name? <laughs> and so we got that info out of him. And I looked at him. I was like, yeah, the chances that he's going to be on this freaking planet I'm on are, like, you know, a snowball's chance in hell. He was. I'm like, okay. So, you know, I'm used to working out at the major hospital around here. And I'd had experiences there from the sinus operation and when, I think my father went there for a bit and whatever the hell else. I know my grandfather went there. And then I had another friend that was in another hospital over here where we were going to an urgent care for years just because I don't want to deal with doctors. So if I needed something, I went to the urgent care. You know, I got a prescription filled or, you know, the immediate thing checked out and then that was it, walked away. But they were affiliated with that hospital. And that hospital is not very good, especially when we visited this one guy who went in there, a uh, guy I used to work with. And it was like, oh, my God, this place is, like, you know, medieval. <laughs> and then there was another one where my mother wound up for a while, and that was almost as bad, if not worse, than the one that he was in. So I'm like, yeah, these fucking places are terrible. I don't want to go anywhere near these things. And uh, it turns out it was actually a different place. All right, I don't know how good this is, because it was in another city nearby, and I guess it's kind of like a Jersey City. You know, it's a little bit lower rent. I'm like, hmm, yeah, well, I guess since this guy's out of here, and she speaks so highly of him, I see, you know, the results here. And she's like, we saw her a couple times after that, too, and she's always like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Go for it. You get it fixed. Like, All right, I guess I had it at this point. So let's go see this guy. And, you know, for the whole freaking time, we saw him in the office, and he says, but he, we never came and saw us. We were always seeing his assistants. You know, one assistant, another assistant, whatever the hell else. You know, they were all doctors or, you know, whatever the hell. But still, it wasn't like him. And 
they had us going through this thing. And literally, we saw this girl in like, I don't know, around Thanksgiving. So I'm like, I'm not going to do nothing over Christmas break. But, you know, as soon as the New Year starts, that was like my New Year's resolution. I'm going to get this looked into. So we're there like at the beginning of the friggin' year. And we saw them like several times. They uh, did this thing where they said, okay, we're going to take an x-ray, did that. Okay, well, now you got to go do physical therapy. And there's a whole shitload of that, like a couple months. And while I'm doing that, and they're working all the stuff out, like I had this thing where he's working on like my sub, subclavicle, sublateral, some whatever the hell it is, the muscle that re- reacts to the rotator cuff, and it was totally fucked up, you know, under your armpit. And he was working that out to do like a massage thing there, as well as all these exercises they have you doing. And I was actually doing; they had a nice weight machine there. It was like uh, for the lateral pull downs and stuff like that, and whatever the hell else. Mm-hmm. And I went there, I think I started off and they tried to put me on like, I don't know what, 35 pounds or something, and I went right up. So, you know, immediately, I'm like, this is ridiculous, so I put it up to something like 65 or something like that. Within, you know, two visits or something, I was up to like 120, <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, if it doesn't bother you, I'm like, yeah, sure. So I'm there like, actually like doing weights, <laughs> even though I got this fucking shoulder injury, but because it was like, I was lucky, most of them didn't hurt. You know, so you're doing, like, you're pulling to your face, you're, you're pulling straight down laterals, and you're doing, uh, there was another one where you pull it back to your shoulders, and those happened to be, because it was like a range that would hit me that would hurt, you never quite knew where it was, it was like, you know, whatever, it was 45 degrees and 67 degrees, but all the others are fine, especially as he was working out his muscles and everything, so... <laughs> You know, I happen to be in those good seconds, so I'm sort of building up muscle again. You know, my uh, trapezius is getting good again, and my deltoids are getting big again. And, you know, I was like, all right, so my upper body started building up. And I started, my wife was watching a lot of those, um, we watch a lot of wrestling. So she's watching Sheamus from WWE, those workouts with all the other wrestlers, right? So we're watching guys that are actually built. Like, and I'm, I'm telling myself, like, oh, yeah, like LA Knight. I'm like, this guy knows what he's doing because, you know, I had a build like that. I see the exercises he's doing. I see the way he's approaching things. All right. And there's a couple people like that. Some of them are schmucks. But there's, like, two or three guys here that are like, oh, yeah, these guys are bodybuilders. Well, we're watching that. And my wife starts getting fired up. So she's <laughs> like, you guys show me some of this guy. So, all right. So I had the bench out from when I kept trying to do it on and off and failing because of this arm. I was like, so I started showing her stuff. And that's making me itch. Plus, I'm doing good with this, you know, physical therapy. So I started doing a little bit with it, you know, gradually at first, but I'm, I'm back there and I'm doing my old weights again to some extent, which was fine, except at some point there, I had I'd done the workout with her on like a Sunday, and then my appointment with them wound up being on a Monday, they kind of moved it to change the day, and, and I after I did both of those, somehow I was like, oh, fuck, you know, it was too much, so for eight days, I was recovering from this, you know, I luckily it was by the time I went back to them, it was okay again. But, you know, still, I can't be doing that. That's crazy. You know, okay, I'm doing great for whatever it is, you know, three, four weeks, and then all of a sudden, bam, you're screwed for a week plus. So I'm like, what am I going to do here? So meantime, things starting to start running out. They sent you for an MRI. They sent you for – this is all, like, part of the process. It is. It is. Uh, Yeah. So they they sent me for – they actually did a cortisone shot. They told me, oh, come back in six weeks. I'm like, six weeks? Are you crazy? Because I already had a cortisone shot for something else. I, I know they don't work. Right? So I was like, this isn't going to do shit. And it didn't. Uh, well, so... it depends on what it is. You know, with my sciatica, I went, I went to, remember I tell you, like, last year I went to this quack? Yes. This Hoboken, this youngish guy. Well, he wasn't young. Probably yeah. 45 to 55. Yeah. And, you know, the first visit I had with him, he was like, I shoot it in my back. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, if I feel a little tense, I just shoot myself. Oh, <laughs> like, my God. I swear. So, you know, the first shot, I went back for two more. And this is over a period of a couple of weeks, you know, because mm-hmm. they don't like to do it too close. Yeah. 
And it really helped me. Really? Yeah. Okay, because, yeah, I had one for the other thing that you know about years ago, and they did jack shit for it. And then I had this one for this, and I was like, jack shit again. So I was like, all right, fine, this is doing nothing. So in the meantime, my stuff is running out. Oh, and, you know, they're telling me, which is funny, too, because I talked to them, like, why are you there? I'm like, yeah, you know, I used to do bodybuilding. I was like, oh, yeah, we can tell all the stuff. You know, it's like, you're, like, the strongest guy that's ever been in this place. It's like, you know, they, they had the machine, and it was set to, they had it all the way down to, like, you know, 250 or 275. And I'm like, you know, it's a little much, you know, but it's, there's somebody here who's that friggin' strong. You have Franco Colombo here? And laughing, like, no, no, because sometimes the people actually hang from there at that weight. He's like, you know, I'll bet if you were, like, back in shape, you're on the shoulder thing, you could do that easy. I'm like, well, I, it's probably true, but, you know, I, I was still at, like, 120 where I'm just kept it there because I didn't want to push it. Right, sure. Again, yeah, no, don't push it. Just, you know, do what you can, you're comfortable with. So uh, they're like, yeah, you know, you're of, of all the people I've ever done in this place, and the guy's been working there for, like, 15, 20 years, I've never seen anybody improve this much with your range of motion and your strength and whatever the hell else. I was like, well, you know, luckily, thank God, I'm, you know, I, I did this stuff, so I'm like, you know, I hate to say that old muscles of memory, but it's true. You know, you get back in the swing of things, and it does come back, unless you're totally fucked up. And uh, and I am fucked up at the moment, so it says something. But, so I'm like, all right, yeah, I really want to do this stuff. I'm all hopped up, but I'm going through all this other stuff. They sent me for the MRI, they sent me for the x-ray, they gave me the cortisone shots, they whatever. And I keep seeing the doctor, and I keep, oh, yeah, you know, go see your other. So finally we get to the point where it's like, all right, at this point, we got to do something. And they saw, okay, yeah, I did have a rotator cuff tear as well as some other junk in there, whatever the hell. And they're like, yeah, I don't know, it could be arthritis. And he goes to me like, oh, you know, while we're in there, maybe you might want to think about, because, you know, it might be arthritis. We might have to do a total shoulder replacement. I'm like, what? No? Are you fucking crazy? I was like, I, I was like I'm not ready to go bionic. That's for damn sure. Mm-hmm. It's like, is this, is this going to, you know, because now at this point, because I was like, the whole complaint about like, Jesus, when are we going to get to this fucking thing? It's taking forever. You know, it's been like, whatever, it's been five months, and they still didn't get to the operation. I'm like, you know, what happens if things change or the insurance changes or whatever? No, I'm not going to be able to pay for this kind of crap. It's got to be on this one here. Sure, sure. So finally, he's like, okay, yeah, we better schedule this. But he's saying that kind of stuff. I'm like, so is, so is all this for nothing? You know, is this even going to help me? He's like, oh, no, no, it's definitely going to help you. And we're going to clean out a bunch of stuff there. You know, he didn't want it. He usually, like, sews the muscles together. He's like, yeah, you, you got a partial, not a full tear, so I'm going to put some kind of, I don't know, gonna, some patch in there or something that's supposed to heal up the muscles or whatever, give it a chance to. And then I guess it all dissolves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's go ahead with this thing. So now, even though I've been pushing for this for months, now I'm terrified, right? Mm-hmm. And I started talking to you. I'm talking to you, and you told me that story about your friend, and I'm like, oh, shit, right? So yeah, I'm he, really like even he, he that guy even posted a couple of pictures a couple of days afterwards and he's like you're starting to feel better now I'm like oh my god that's grotesque <laughs> and I'm thinking that from the incisions he had yeah shown in the picture you probably got the full shoulder oh yeah no that's a big difference in open surgery and this uh, arthroscopy thing yeah yeah it's like damn <laughs> yeah so he's like you know. Don't worry about it. it was, we'll just go ahead. You know, all your body parts will still be the same. You'll still be you. We're not going to mess with this thing. We'll just, you know, see how this goes. All right, fine. So, but I'm scared to death, right? So I'm like not sleeping for days beforehand, all this kind of stuff. Like, uh, having all those weird nightmares. So, so, and I'm trying desperately to do 
anything possible that I think could, you know, because you don't realize I was like practicing. Okay, I was literally practicing like five days beforehand. Like, okay, what happens if I just don't use this arm much and just try to just use the one arm? And I'm like, oh my god, you can't do this, you can't do that. So I'm doing all kinds of projects and I'm rushing to do. That's why I got two shows ready here. I'm rushing to do that stuff, run all my reviews and. So all kinds of shit's going down, and I was like, just calm down, relax. You know, he's like, no, I can't, because if I sit down, I'm gonna think about this more. So I'm just gonna get. Yeah, you, you get anxious. Yeah. yeah. So I go in there, and it's like, oh yeah, the day before they're gonna give you the time or some shit. They didn't tell me nothing. Oh yeah, you're gonna go on this day, but it was like Tuesday. But they won't tell you until the night before. I'm like, what? Right. Yeah. So, that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in three o'clock or so comes because. That was actually the week before when they called me and says, okay, we want you to get this, like, post-op medication and stuff, and here's a ring of them. And they're actually somewhere, like, scared the shit out of me. Like, really? That bad? But, you know, they call around, like, 3 or 3.30 or something stupid like that. Okay, fine. Well, 3 or 3.30 comes around the day before, and they still didn't call. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, I'm like, just give them a call over there and see what's going on. Right. So I called the place, and... They put me through to somebody else. So it's like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, you're right. We, we call later, but, you know, since you called, I'll get you the information. Yeah, you've been bumped back to 5.30 in the morning. I'm like, holy shit. All right, fine, whatever. Oh, okay. uh, so, that makes your sleepless night even more sleepless. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually, in retrospect, it probably helped because I was so out of it just from being, like, exhausted. Because, yeah. you know, you get up at, like, 4.30 in a friggin' morning, plus you're waking up beforehand, and it's tough to fall asleep before, like you've mentioned. So I've got, like, no sleep. And I go in there, I'm like, ugh, in a daze. You know, of course, my wife drives me on that shit. And he, he actually finally shows up because they, cause they kept telling me, like, oh, no, you're scheduled for 10 o'clock. Because, like, I don't know why they told you 530. I'm like, what? <laughs> I can for, like, five hours. Didn't happen. But still, yeah. uh, you know, we're sitting there for a long time. Finally, the guy shows up because like, the nurse is coming on. And he's, I don't, probably didn't mention it, he's some young hotshot. You know, picture, like, a black Stephen Strange. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally. And, and he's like... I liked him. I, when I finally met him, like, a week or so beforehand, I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I would hang with this guy. He's cool. <laughs> I, I actually feel better about that. Because so like, other people are like, oh, wow, he's so arrogant. No, he was, yeah, okay, this this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, where's, Plus, where's your Maserati? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Plus, I mentioned to you, uh, he's, like, the head of his department in New York City, you know, it's kind of crap before doing this stuff. At, yeah. like, a really ridiculously young age, I'm just like, wow, this guy's, you know, like I said, a hot shot. So, <laughs> and he's walking in, he's like, yeah, so, you know, something like what did he say to me it was something funny like yeah you know besides how great i am you know anything any questions you got <laughs> like <laughs> like i know i'm great i'm like okay yep all right well, we'll, this we'll makes, see how this goes makes me want to revisit those uh those first couple of iron man movies they were fun uh, yeah yeah that's strange iron man all that shit same idea but yeah totally like full of stuff and i was like you know it would be great because like i would hang with this guy because the two biggest egos in the room <laughs> I get him. I'm like, yeah, okay. You have a big ego? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's scary thing, though, because, you know, you, you work out to better your body. And as you get older, you know, you adjust, you know, you, you realize you can't push yourself. Yeah, right. I, I, I totally say that the two hernias I had about a year and a half apart, maybe two years apart, yeah. were the result of going to the gym yeah. and, and me fucking up. Thankfully, I was never one of those assholes that, oh, everybody else in the room is doing 500 pounds, so I got to keep up. No, I wasn't. I actually had other bodybuilders, like, give me crap, like, oh, that's all you're pushing? I'm like, that's what I'm comfortable with. I don't care. Yeah. I see my body. I know it's looking good. I don't need to go prove that you're, I'm stronger than you. I don't give a shit. Yeah, so that saved yeah. me. That saved me. I, so. I was starting to, like, just, like, oh, yeah, I'm seeing the improvements now, and the, this body's getting sculpted, and I'm, like, dropping mm-hmm. away. This is great. And then, like, I'm laying down one day, and, like, my girlfriend at the time, 
first time I, I was already divorced. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> you know, yes. it, it pushes through the muscle, mm-hmm. pushes through the uh, tissue, and you got this fucking bulge in your abdomen. And you're like, what the hell is that? Yeah. 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 The first one was like, so painful. <laughs> no, because you you go through this operation and like um, you put this wire mesh before they would use plant. This is why every time I go fly, they're like, "Do you have any weapons built in your body?" <laughs> no, it's yes. their wire mesh. You know, it's before they use plastic. Um, so anyway, uh, that's which is true. It's embarrassing. Would you like us yeah. to go to a room? Why? I just told you. You know. <laughs> Look at my age. Do I look like a fucking terrorist? Um, well. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so the second time was actually recovery was easier. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, oof. Yeah. Now, and I knew other guys that were, like, bodybuilders and stuff that even they weren't hanging out with. Like, when I used to go to those comic shows, there was a guy that was, like, you know, trying to still be a bodybuilder at his age. Mm-hmm. And uh, not seriously, but, you know, you could tell he worked out. And also one day he came in, he's like, yeah, I was out for, like, a month because – you know, I got a hernia, and it's like, I'm still having trouble. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, that's what happens. you got to be careful. You can't show sure. And even admit, it's like, yeah, you know, I had to show off some young guns at the gym or whatever the hell. And... I never went back, though. I never went back because uh, Harvey was frightened, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I get it. Like, you see what happened to me. I, like, stopped for, like, I don't know how long. I just kept going back in my own place. I didn't go to the gyms or whatever. Uh... But, uh, you know, you got to the point where I couldn't do nothing. So anyway, we saw the guy, and he finally shows up, and he's like cracking just like, don't worry about it, you know, you're in good hands, don't, he says, we do these things so often, it's like brushing your teeth, and I'm like, he's like, you know, obviously the stakes are higher, but he's like, you know, don't worry about it, we'll, we'll take care of you, and I gotta say, this friggin' hospital was, I always felt a good vibe out of the place, but a lot of warmth there, and the people were all like super friendly and attentive, you know, it wasn't like, when you go to this other one right around here, it's got a great reputation, supposedly, they're just icy, and they leave you there, and, you know, some people told me they don't even see your own doctor ever there, <laughs> So it's like, none of that shit. This, this was all, everybody was there. The only problem was they kept leaving you waiting because like, okay, we're going to schedule you. I got another one before you, but then, you know, whatever. So they send you down to another room. Uh, it's funny because I, I got to give them credit because they actually aren't, you know, those assholes. Oh, no, you got to check your background or whatever, all kind of stuff. Because there's some guy that I know he was an ex-gangbanger. No question. He was, he's like the orderly or whatever the hell. Friendliest guy on earth. But I saw the palm of his hand, you know, like the web. And I was like, yeah, okay. I was like, you know what? Usually I ask people like to talk about that stuff, but I was like, I'm not going to bust his ball, especially in public here with these other people. I don't want to get him in trouble. But finally, shit, everybody's friendly. Everybody's on top of stuff. The only problem we had was apparently they had this anesthesiologist, and they always suck. I've had this problem in another hospital too. And they're like, yeah, you know, I had orders. Because they're all like, what's going on? Why is he still waiting here? You know, they're getting ready over there. He's like, no, if we got orders from on high not to call the anesthesiologists because they want to see how proactive they are with actually taking care of patients. Because, I don't know, I guess they were just fucking off. So I got to be the lucky test subject or one of them. So I'm sitting there and sitting there and sitting there, and I'm bullshitting with one of the nurses. Other people are coming in and relieving them because it's like, okay, well, now i got to go off to a seminar or some crap. It turns to be like a 15-minute thing, but still. People come back and talk about this. Where's this? Okay, what's going on? And everybody's like, what the hell's going on? Why are you still there? I'm like, ah, they told me not to call anesthesiology. Don't do it. Just wait to see when he shows up. So he showed up like, I don't know what, 45 minutes, an hour later? Wow. <laughs> He was the only person there that I did not, like, I don't want to say I didn't think he was competent, but I thought he was an asshole. Some Indian guy, I don't know. 
So there's something up with anesthesiologists. They're never any good. <laughs> As you can see, you know, they're they're on probation already at this place. But it was such a good experience overall, despite the fact that, you know, like I said, like, you know, okay, I'm going in for surgery, yay. But, you know, it was like, it was totally effortless. Everybody was on top of shit. Everybody was careful about everything. And I, right from the damn operation, no pain. I was like, what? Okay, maybe it's got me on a lot of meds. Come home, no pain. I'm like, I'm looking at stuff. I was like, can you give me like OxyContin or some crap like that? And I asked him, I was like, you know, because we came in in the morning. The only thing he didn't do was come in afterwards, which is strange. He didn't like, you know, they come in and tell you, okay, I did this, I did that. And maybe he's saving it for the follow-up visit. I don't know, but he didn't say shit. But in the morning, when he first came in, he was telling us, okay, you know, we're doing this, doing that, you got any questions? And I said, yeah, well, you gave me these meds for afterwards. And he's like, you know, I don't know about something. Does it seem kind of heavy duty? You know, do I have to take this stuff? He's like, no, it's like it's just there if you're feeling pain or whatever. And it's like if you don't do it, it's like, don't even take it. It's like yeah, don't bother. Just take the you know this and that, whatever, whatever you need. But psh, you don't feel nothing, don't do it. So I never felt nothing. So I never took this crap. The only problem I had, which they warned you about, probably for anesthesiology, is that when you get out, you might be nauseous. So of course, you know, the ride home, I couldn't make it all the way. But I still, even to this day, I'm still having like a lot of like on and off nausea. Not never gets to the point of like when I was coming home. But you know, I've been able to eat, no problems. You know, everything's cool. It's just I keep getting these things where I'm just sitting there with a basically a bottle of Tums usually helps it out, and I'm just kind of like sucking on those things constantly. Otherwise, no problem. I just they said like you might not want to lay on your back because people say the stitches feel like they're pulling, and obviously I can't lay on my right where I usually do. So now I'm like, well, okay, you maybe I'll just sit up in the chair. Sure, they said, yeah, you know, if you got a recliner or something, just sit up in the chair and sleep that way. All right, fine. So that's what I've been doing. Uh-huh. And you know, my wife's just great, so she's constantly on top of me taking care of stuff. So, you know, I actually went out this morning with her because I didn't want her to go to the store by herself. So and that was a little bit rough because actually just walking, even though I got the sling, you're kind of feeling like every foot bounce. I'm like, geez, I didn't realize that. You know, when you step normal, it's like bump, 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 bump. But uh, otherwise, it was fine. And uh, then I started seeing other people that had the same thing. I'm like, oh yeah. You know, this, it was quick for me, too, whatever, you know. I don't think too many of them said they didn't have any pain other than, because this, this guy must just be great. That's the deal. You know, just that woman and me. I was like, oh, yeah, there's nothing. Like, really? Nothing? But, yeah, everybody I bumped into was telling me, like, even the guy in the hall we ran into in our building, he's like, what the hell happened to you? And I told him, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got the same problem, but I didn't go in and get it fixed or nothing. And so we talked about five or six people since I had this, mm-hmm. that all of whom have some kind of rotator cuff injuries, and whether they deal with them or not. So I don't know. I guess it's common when you get older. I mean, I'm not that old, but still. You're getting up there. Yeah, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> I feel young. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, we all feel young until shit happens. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's all the fantastic fun on my end. But, you know, it was okay. I, uh, I had spent a lot of time watching. I was like, before I did this, what's the longest, most relaxing shit I got? Just to try to... Because, you know, I've had these things where I was up all night for, you know, food poisoning and toothaches and all kinds of crap. Right. Uh, and when I had pneumonia, for God's sakes, when I was watching all those dark shadows back in the 90s, I'm sitting there watching Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. So I, I only got to, like, that, half of that. The Gary Oldman? No, no, the old one with uh, Alec Guinness and uh, Alec yeah, a whole bunch of people, okay. you know, Vern Sewell from Special Branch. Patrick Stewart was in there briefly. Uh, you know, I forget. There's a whole bunch of people on that thing. So, yeah, next up, I'm going to do the sequel, which I never really thought was anywhere near as good, the Smilish people. Basically living normally, except that I can't really type much. I think I did a couple small you know, one-handed posts, but uh, basically it's just... I, I watched something last night. I couldn't fucking finish because it was so long. Can you believe I can't believe it. What was it? John Wick 4. It was... Uh, How long was it? Well, it was available on Verizon. I had to buy it. I said, well, $14 to rent it, which means I can't... Oh, jeez. <laughs> 
You might as well buy that. Well, I said, I'll <laughs> buy it for 20 bucks because you know what? I missed it in the theater. Yeah. I was busy and I was on and off sick with various things around the time it came out, which is like mm-hmm. a month ago. And I said, that's all right. Going to the movies now is like $17. And- yeah. What is with it? Okay, you go to the movies, you're paying like 20 bucks, and you got two people. Get something to eat, right? If you try to stream, it's like, oh, yeah, 8 to 15 bucks. I'm like, the hell are you crazy? Just go buy a damn Blu-ray or something. <laughs> right, so it's not, a, it's not physical yet. So I said, oh, I'll, I'll just stream it to home. You know, like it embeds itself mm-hmm. into my DVR. Yeah. And I, I knew going in it was two hours and 50 minutes. So I said, mm-hmm. I'll start this around 4 o'clock. No, 4.30. Mm-hmm. I pause it to eat dinner, clean up, et cetera, et cetera, go back to it. I'm like, this fucking movie is so exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I like the first two. I love the third one. Mm-hmm. And Donnie Yen has a really big part in this one. Okay. And um, so is uh, Tatsuya Nakadai. Okay. And he's from the old school. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, you got a lot of formidable people in here. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, say what you will. I mean, this is like, like Rio, we did the show on Sandra and, you know, we're like, yeah. you know, Keanu just fucking is great in that role. Mm-hmm. And these John Wick movies, it's like, where is he pulling this out? Of? <laughs> and I don't know how they pulled this off. I, it's like one continuous night. Really? Editing is phenomenal. And it's exhausting to watch. It's like, damn. So <laughs> like, Two hours plus, they finally get to Paris after they've been to Tokyo <laughs> and New York. Yeah. And and they're in the Paris, and there's a fight that begins that's going to go up the Eiffel Tower. And there's hundreds of guys, hundreds of guys, all kinds of different martial arts. I'm like, I have to stop watching. <laughs> <laughs> this is too fucking much. Is that like your like, train to Busan where you're talking about? Yeah, I was like train to Busan, you know, with that one had zombies. But this, <laughs> this, this, this was like fucking crazy shit. And I was like, yeah, I can see why he doesn't want to do anymore. He's, you know, 60. Mm-hmm. You know? But that one had zombies. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, that one had zombies. Now, if, if they, well, they got a character now that, I don't know, I haven't finished this, so I don't know where it ends up. But uh, they have they have this character that could be pushing for, you know what's phenomenal? What? I always liked Ian McShane. Okay. Yo, I love him, yeah. Yeah, and you know, back in the days, we at Burton, we did the, you know, we mentioned Bill and and, and uh, Lovejoy. Remember that oh, show we had? I Lovejoy? love Lovejoy, and I was funny thing is, I was just watching Tam Lin yesterday, you know, from a Roddy Mathal show. <laughs> yeah, right? Yo, he's kind of leathery now, but you know, he's still there, he's still working, and I'm like, damn, is he still around? <laughs> An interesting Lance Reddick, who has a prominent part in that series. They, they wrote him out early. I, I'm not going to give it away for any John Wick fans who might be listening. They wrote him out early in the film mm-hmm. last night. And shockingly, he died weeks after the, the official premiere. Right. Yeah, which you probably know about. Yeah. That was big news. And like, I don't think they still haven't did the autopsy result released that. I was like, well, that's nice because then it's really awkward. Yeah. If the guy's in this picture and you want to do more, but I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully it's in my DVR. I notice I haven't been charged for it yet. Which is usually right away. Yeah, I want to see how the hell they get up and down the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> never been to France. No, I never have, but yeah, it's not high on the list. But like, if you say Louis, you have six months to live. I'm like, I'm gonna go fund me. Give me a lot of money. I want to go around the world. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, I definitely want to hit some spots in Europe and maybe Japan. Yes, Japan. Yes, yes, yes. What else? Tina Turner died yesterday. Tina Turner and Kenneth Onger, same day. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> 
Because, you know, I met him. Really? Yeah, when I was working at New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Oh, he always hung out there, yeah. Yeah, and, and God, it was him and the other character. Who wrote the book Dino? Dean Martin Bio, another, another famous character author. Anyway, you know, I was actually on desk duty that day. You know, so, like, I'm the reference librarian guy, and I'm like, holy shit, Kenneth Anger. So was he as much of an asshole as his reputation? <laughs> it was pretty quiet, you know. Okay. We, we, we were never told this, but we kind of, we had a special room, right? Mm -hmm. And we were always kind of like hinted at it, like if there like people come in, you know, you could suggest a private room, mm -hmm. which is like other people in that room, but like nobody bothers you. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thanks. Darren McGavin took us up on that. Okay. He was a dick. Yeah, I remember you saying Darren McGavin was a dick and Miles Davis, of course. Who was the one that was okay? Oh, uh, De Niro, you said. No, De, De Niro was crazy. <laughs> no, Pacino was very nice. Mm -hmm. Pacino was very nice. Pacino was like, he had some guy with him, so I guess like his guy, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have many stories in those days. You know, Pacino was like, you know, I even walked up to him. He was looking at a card catalog. This is how Pacino opened his <laughs> card catalog, right? I'm like, what are you looking for, man? Well, you know, I, I'm looking for some things. I said, oh, no, you want to go look over here? I said, would you would you like to go in a special? Nobody's going to. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you, man. Thank you. I'm like, and he's tall. That's all I said. You're taller than I thought. <laughs> I know. I figured he'd be short. <laughs> yeah, no. He's like average height. Yeah, he's not that fucking short. Now he's like 140 years old. Um, <laughs> now, De Niro's another story. And, and if you ever do a show on like weird fucking people you met. Oh, <laughs> uh, Darren McGavin, you know. <laughs> Because I loved, Culture. you know, yeah. our favorite show, Night Stalker, yep. right? Mm -hmm. uh, that one, you know, the two movies and the series and, mm -hmm. and other things he's done, Christmas Story. You know, I'm not a huge fan of it, but, you know. I, I talked about all, uh, those, the, the Kolchak movies and the thing in the Dan Kirsten 70 show. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, he was just ornery. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that. <laughs> oh, you know who did come in one time? I completely forgot to tell you about this over the years. The guy who directed The Wicker Man. Really? Uh, uh, was yes. it Robin uh, Hardy, I think it was? Robin Hardy. Yeah. And, you know, he comes in, like, looking at his face. I'm like, you look familiar to me. And, like, he's filling out a call slip to get a book. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, it's Robin Hardy. Didn't he, like, not really do another film until that one with, uh, I forget, I know Scorpion put it out and I reviewed it, the Mini Driver and Granny Panties, what the hell the name of that movie was. It was like, yeah, he didn't work too much. Yeah. I probably did a few other things, but he didn't work too much. And and I actually did talk to him, mm -hmm. you know, and, and he was, you know, like, you know what to say and what not to say, you know? Yeah, right. Not like Tony Randall, oh, taking me back to memory lane. How was it? I wasn't up front. It was like uh, one of the kids who worked for me go, you have, to, you have to come up here. I was at my desk in the back. I'm like, what's wrong? Is there a problem? You have to come up here. She said, Mom, don't look. I'm like, what? It's Felix. Because <laughs> you know, they ran those things forever. Yeah, right. And I look out. I said, oh, shit. He's sitting right in there, smiling with his legs crossed mm. and his arms across his chest. Yeah. Like, I'm Tony Randall, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, oh, shit. 
It was weird because he was in a lot of movies back in the 60s and early 70s. Like, going to be mentioning him tonight. Even yeah. the even Girl Spy shit he was in, with, you know, kind yeah. of comedy ones, but still. And then his Agatha Christie stuff and whatever else. And then he wound up doing a whole bunch of stuff for uh, the Metropolitan Opera. He would, like, introduce all his opera because he was a big opera fan. Do you remember that? Yes, yes I do. <laughs> so. And he famously married a much younger woman. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to say to that, but okay. <laughs> yeah. You know about that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's That was big stuff. Okay, so take a listen. This mm-hmm. long intro, uh, these are fun, too. <laughs> <laughs> if we edit, ever edit these into hours of entertainment like a party tape. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we did that, this would be And I Love a Mark, too. Because <laughs> that's basically what we did. We didn't really talk about anything. We are just bullshitting. So. <laughs> Other politics, you know, whatever's going on in life. Yeah, we're, but, uh, we're, we're, no politics tonight. Not, not tonight. <laughs> Another time. <laughs> All right, check it out. Number All right. One. All right. There was a bit of a thing for this at the time. Excuse me.